6-7W. Classified top secret subject is... Hey, kids, comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better. Stronger. That's a world record, isn't it? Not but a second into it before I stumble over my words. And welcome to a brand new episode of Hey Kids Comics. I'm Andrew Leyland. I'm Michael Leyland. Uh, and today, New Frontier. Uh, before we begin, though, as has become uh, situation normal for the past couple of weeks, emails. You alright there, Michael? I'm fine. Did we introduce ourselves? Yes, we did. Oh, God, my memory's shocking, isn't it? Our first email tonight is from Charlie Niemeyer. We have a theme tune for emails. We should have a theme tune. I used to put the Rocky thing in the da 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 as email theme tune. What what would you recommend as an email theme tune? I don't know actually. And I used to put top of the pops under the mute under when we were talking. It's, is it quite sad that I remember that? Oh, the Mr. Men. I really don't know. Anyway, Charlie Nemai is now sitting at home wondering where we're going to get to his email. <laughs> I like to tease. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Hello, lovely podcasters, says Charlie. Before I get into the part where I gush about your coverage of Night's End, oh, please continue to gush. A couple of notes. It's too bad most of the other comics you had handy were from Marvel. I do seem to recall several black and white ads on the inside covers around this time, such as at the start of the reign of the Superman, and when Alan Scott got a solo adventure in the Green Lantern Corps quarterly book of the time. There were colour ads too, however, so what do I know? As for Legends of the Dark Knight never crossing over the other back books before Night's End, Andrew's forgetting the very storyline he mentioned just a few minutes earlier. It's not shocking. No. That I forget things but seconds after I mention them, is it? Not really. The Destroyer storyline that basically converted Gotham from looking somewhat normal to looking like Anton First's nightmare crosses over from Batman to Legends before ending in Detective. Just pointing it out. And since Mr. Bailey pointed it out, this was also my favourite version of the G.I. Joe theme and Jackson Beck also narrated the 1960s filmation Superman cartoons. You were wrong. I wasn't wrong... I'd merely forgotten that prior to... My point still stands. Legends of the Dark Knight was an out-of-continuity book that people were a bit miffed crossed over into Night's End. Still is. Yeah, well, yeah, but now it's digital. And really good. Is it? Yeah. I suppose we'll have to read that then, won't I? Okay, with those out of the way, I enjoyed your coverage of the previous parts of the Night's trilogy and have, so far, enjoyed your continued coverage of Night's End. You've only listened to one episode. I wouldn't get your hopes too high. (laughs) I, too, remember being upset about the story crossover all the Batman books, see? 
Not because I was only following Legends, but because I had gotten a pack of comics that DC put out that basically contained a copy of each comic that DC released in a given month at the $1.50 price point. Since Shadow of the Bat and Legends of the Dark Knight had higher cover prices, they weren't included. And since I was only 13, 14 at the time, I could not easily get to a comic book store or bookshop to get them. In fact, it really wasn't until a few years ago that I was finally able to find both issues of Legend and see how the story ended. See, that's another reason for crossing over in 12-4 books. Mm-hmm. People, because those packs, you still get those packs. Yeah. Forbidden Planet still have a pack of relatively recent comics for about two quid, yeah? Anyway, I think I've rambled on enough. Thanks again for such a great show. It's probably the only podcast to feature the sounds of an entire family eating Twinkies, so congrats on that. <laughs> Do you know that went down so well? Yeah. It was just that they're eating American trash food. You know there is probably a podcast out there going, this family eats food. Om, 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 om. Yeah, the, the, I believe there is a podcast that is somebody eats snacks. Fair enough. I believe that is a thing. Uh, we did not know that is before it, we did our bit. Is it like wine tasting? We have to smell it. Yes, then. we have to. You have to do a Jilly Goulden. And right. you have to go, this has a fine bouquet. And it smells, oh, jolly gosh. A fine bouquet. Yeah, by the end Flowers of it. springing out By the, the end snacks, of it, you're ratted. It? And she has rosy cheeks. Uh, so until I change my name to Luke, Jack, and Charlie. Sorry, Luke. Charlie, you're very welcome, Charlie. Sent from my iPhone. Oh, I didn't think he meant to read that. From my, he wrote all that on his iPhone. I'm very impressed. Mm. I can't write more than a sentence on an iPhone before I go. This pad's too small. Thank you very much, Charlie. Charlie hosts nice. the Superman in the Bronze Age podcast. It's very annoying the the tapping and the noise it makes all the time. Yes, not the Superman in the Bronze Age podcast. No, the 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 iPad. Yeah. you can turn that noise off. You know. Can you? Yeah, I think so. If it's your iPad. You'll yelp me if I mess I've with it. I've turned it off. Okay. I've turned off noise because your mum sulked at me. <laughs> Our next email is from Tom Panarese. Hi, Tom. Hello, Leylands. Has Tom spoken to us before? I, I think Tom has emailed us in before, yes. He I know of have Facebooked him. He sounds new. Do you not know the name? Nope. Oh. You're new, Tom, <laughs> according to Michael. You're shiny and new. I don't know if you've been touched for the very first time, but maybe we, we don't want to go there. <laughs> I wanted to write in and say that I'm very glad that you're covering the Nightfall trilogy because I've been waiting to hear you talk about Night's End for a while now. What's funny is that I don't remember the original comics all that well, except that I remember being disappointed in Night's End. But the <laughs> two of you have so far done a great job at reminding me how good writers like Chuck Dixon and Alan Grant were when it came to writing Batman and his supporting cast, especially Nightwing and Robin, whose titles Dixon wrote and wrote well for years. You know what I found out the other day? What did you find out the other day? Do you know what Chuck Dixon's currently writing? No. The Transform title for um, IDW. Is he? Yeah. See, it's all circular. Like I've said to you before, it seems like I plan this, when in fact I don't. No. It's all just dumb luck. Lots of it. Lots of dumb luck. Yeah, well, Chuck Dixon's brilliant, isn't he? His, his, his has been the, by far the best in the Knights trilogy storylines. Better than Doug Munch. Yes. Yes, I have nothing against Doug Munch. <laughs> he's a lovely bloke, I'm sure, but Chuck Dixon's were better. If he's like the, a, a baby eater now. <laughs> Allegedly. Let's throw that out there. Alleged baby eater. We know when it's sued. Anyway, Tom's email continues. Speaking of Nightwing, I guess we should all go easy on the guy. After all, at this point in time, he was out of the Titans and Starfire had left him. 
and Earth for that matter, so we might not have been too happy about a maniac living in the Batcave. It's kind of like flunking out of college and being dumped in the same week and then going home to find out your parents have turned your childhood bedroom into a home gym without telling you. Although for Tim's sake I would ignore any of Dick's advice regarding women. His last girlfriend was an alien whom he met after she crash-landed through another guy's roof. That's not exactly asking out that cute girl you like in your fifth period study hall. Besides, you're right, they really should do the jobs that Bruce has asked them to do instead of going off on side trips like the Shaggy and Scooby in search of food. <laughs> I didn't think of that. Tim and Dick and the Shaggy and Scooby. Who's who? <laughs> well, Batman would obviously be Fred. Yeah. Batgirl has to be Thelma, doesn't she? Um, Daphne would be Batmite. Yeah. And then Shaggy and Scooby are Dick and Tim. And there you go, and the, and the mystery machines, the Batmobile. So I, I don't think Batman could be Fred. <laughs> Do you know? Because I've just got the, the Malcolm in the Mill quote in my head. It's like, yeah, he's kind of like the gay guy in Scooby-Doo. You know, the leader. <laughs> the one who wore the ascot. Fred was not gay, was he? He wore that tie like he was. Did he? That scarf. See, in the films, he was married to Sarah Michelle Gellar, as he was in life. No, it's like... You, you, you know the argument in Chase and Amy that Archie was gay? Yes. Because he was ignoring... Betty and Veronica. Veronica's approaches. Hmm. It's like that. See, he was being approached, but he just ignored it all the time. Right. It was a children's cartoon. <laughs> you are aware of this. <laughs> anyway, if your interpretations of the rest of Night's End are as dramatically hilarious as what you've already done, I can't wait for the next episode. Tom. You're very welcome, Tom. Were we hilarious for the rest of it? I don't think we were hilarious, no. I think we were adequate. I think we were burly adequate. Mediocre. Yeah, mediocre. Mediocre to adequate. Yeah. <laughs> That's our new t-shirt. Hey, kids comics, mediocre to adequate. We've got a lot of these fictional t-shirts. Yes, that we really should make. We don't need to now if we're going to be part of... Th- oh, I didn't mention that. We may be joining the Two True Freaks podcasts because Scott's very kindly offered to put up all our old episodes that aren't up anymore. So we're part of the family. So we're part, part of the of Two the True Freaks family. No. I'm sure you and Scotty could do a regular show together. We were supposed to this weekend, but I forgot. You're shocking. Anyway, P.S. Tom's got a P.S. They still do P.S.'s on emails. Oops. I quite, I quite like that. Very quaint. I did find a 1990s DC comic with an inside cover ad that wasn't for the Milestone crossover. But seeing that I tend to stand with Andrew on most of your arguments, I'm not going to say where it is or what it's for. <laughs> wow. oh, very funny. He's not telling you where the other monochrome adverts are. Ah, right. Just to annoy you. Just to annoy me? Yeah. You know, you don't even remember that argument, no, do you? No, I, I do, and I know I'm still right, because that's the second email <laughs> that said I was right now. All right, fair enough. Our next email is from Nat Boy. Hey, boy. Hey, Nat Boy. Hey, Mr. Boy. That's actually J. David Wheater. All right. Who hosts the Incredible Hulk podcast. I was just going to say, I feel like a right racist calling people boys. Uh, why, why is that racist to call them a boy? It's not racist, because is it? Because it's historic that the white people look down on black people and call them boys. Oh, which is right. Black people call the white guys man, which is why now it's just come the thing where, hey, man. Right. But not the man that's keeping them down and oppressing you. No. Really? Because that's now just become a generic term for anybody who keeps you down and oppresses you, like the government or your parents or whatever. Right. Right. Standing up to the man. The man. Yeah. Raising it against the machine. And once again... And killing in the name. <laughs> J. David is waiting for us to get to his email after we've told everyone that he's emailed us in and then we didn't bother talking about his email. Well, let's move on to the next email. The next email? <laughs> <laughs> Dear sirs, oh, very formal. Mm. Thank you very much. We, we should sit up straight for this. We should, yes. And wear our formal attire. Shall I get my monocle out of its chest? I think we should wear a monocle for <laughs> dear sirs, yes. 
I had to drop your line to thank you for your Spider-Man month. You're very welcome. Send us money. It was very quaint. <laughs> it was very quaint and most adorable in many ways. Andrew, your unique list. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. It, it was very unique. A uh, list of Spider-Man stories led me to blowing the dust off my Spider-Man CD-ROM and plow through some Spider-Man stories. You well, mean those things at the back of 90s comics actually were real? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That's where Stephen Lacey reads all his Fantastic Four comics from when we do Fantasticats from the old CD-ROM. Right. They all fit on one DVD now. Mm-hmm. CD-ROMs are so last century. Spidey has always been a character that I like, but I am admittedly a fur weather fan. I hope Andrew doesn't hop on a plane and brain me with his omnibus. Come on! Honestly, he has to give me a little reprieve. I would now. not. We could go over there and... Uh, we could drop him on his feet. We, we I'm not down with braining people. We could take an omnibus each and beat him with it. No, 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 I don't want to damage my omnibuses. <laughs> don't be ridiculous. <laughs> I would never hurt anyone with an omnibus. Those omnibuses are expensive. <laughs> I may club you one of Michael's absolutes, because that's DC. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Honestly. If anything, my absolute's more expensive than your own. They are, yes. Yes, that's very true. Honestly, this show has one of my favourite dynamics in podcasting, and I'm sure others love the idea of having a dad who is a fan, and who guides his children in the path like a Jedi Master and his Padawan apprentice. The generational differences, which I tend to lean more towards your age, Andrew, rather than Michael's, help me to see things in a different light and open the doors to new rereads of my dusty long box contents. That's really quite sweet. Mm. Thank you very much. Are we the only comic collectors that don't have long boxes? We are crappy paper, paper boxes, boxes that yeah. I steal from work. Well, well, you've seen I don't keep my comics in bags. No. And I draw all over them, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> Which is still a source of endless amusement to you, isn't it? (laughs) Uh, Finally, Andrew, you mentioned the golden age of comics, lasting from 1979 to 1988. Well, Andrew, you are wrong. And I have to agree with a small caveat. My golden age runs from 1977 to about 1989, right up to the launch of the second X-Men book and the Todd McFarlane adjectiveless Spider-Man book, which was a turning point in the way comics were marketed and viewed. It's nice to know that somebody else feels similar. I'm sure Michael will be the king of the podcast in a few years when us older guys have finally run off the internet for complaining too much about the way comics were when we were younger. He's a very good observational guy, and I wish more fans of his age range had the respect for comics that he exhibits. Even when I disagree with his opinion... (laughs) Ditko's great! (laughs) I do like that it forms that opinion and sticks to it. So good on you, Michael. There you go. Thank you. There you go. You know, I've told you I was reading your second Spider-Man on bus. Because it's Ramita at work. And I'm reading the fir- the two-part Green Goblin story. Mm. And I'm going, this is this is good. I'll read the first Green Goblin story now. I'm looking at it and I'm like, I'll give it a pass. If you're dissing on Ditko again... Gr- Gr- Green Goblin looks like a transvestite. He does not. He does. He looks like, Luke, he's, wearing, he looks like he's wearing like a guy a transve- liner. He's not wearing guy liner. <laughs> Other than the standard keep up the good work, I do want to congratulate you on never missing a week since the show's inception. That is no easy feat. No, no, it really isn't. Thank you very much. Sincerely, J. David Weeter, Esquire. (laughs) The third. This microphone smells like sulphur. I don't know where his quote's from. No. But it's very good. Thank you very much, dear David. We appreciate that. As I mentioned, dear David Weeter does Pad Smash with Michael Bailey and Lee Busby. Why why would he be sending an email through a record microphone I don't know <laughs> our listeners listen to us by definition that means they're a little strange true you'd have <laughs> to be to put up with us and that's that's not that, that's a compliment mm. I much prefer people that are a little strange to people that are not 
more interesting. Our next email is from Dave Walker. Hi, Dave. Hi, Dave. And he's called this one Night Email Send. You see what he did there? It was very good. It was very good. Hey, y'all. Sorry, I'm running low on ideas how to start these things with originality. <laughs> so he's just still Mike Bailey's there, isn't he? What about in French or another language? Andrew and Mikel. You wouldn't like Mikel, No, would it's you? Michelle in French. Is it? Yep. That would make you a girl. Yep. Would I, what would I be? Would I still be Andrew or would I be André? <laughs> André and both, Michelle. Would that make us both gay? No, that, no, that makes us sound like we're a chef team. <laughs> we should have a cooking programme. Or fashion designers. Yeah, oh God, because there's not enough of those types of shows on television, is there? Once again, we've interrupted the email before. We, we're doing it deliberately now. Yeah. We like to tease the people that email into us. And say, look, here you go. We've got your email. We're going to read it. But you've got to listen to us talk crap for a few seconds first. First up, in order to save you from doing something you may have already done, I have checked Wikipedia where we're told Jessica Drew was indeed the original character Bendis wanted to use for Alias. Oh, yeah, because Wikipedia's right. As per usual, (laughs) Professor Bailey is correct in these things. Uh, Yes, I did say that I would do that, didn't I? Well, Look it up and see who was right. mm -hmm. Uh, Did I do that? No. No, I didn't. I completely forgot. So thanks, Dave. I do appreciate you telling us. Because I'd completely yeah, forgot. Yeah, Jessica Drew was a detective. And the Spider-Woman I just read, which takes place after Secret Invasion, she was previously a, a, a detective before joining the Avengers. Because she lost her spider powers in the Avengers in the 80s. Well, she, she's got them back now. Well, yeah. I'm currently wondering if I insulted Michael, as I was given the link to Two True Freaks, The Next Generation 2, which I listened to a while back, in a reply to my last email. If I did, I'm sorry. If I didn't, then, um, good job. I'm sure its relevance will become apparent. Um, I don't remember him insulting you, do you? I don't remember insulting him. No. He asked about where you talked about Arkham Asylum, did and he? we said it was on Two True Freaks, The Next Generation. Did he insult me? No, no, no. Hmm. no. I'm a bit confused by that. Yeah. Maybe that's just us, though. Because yeah. we, we go through life in a permanent state of befuddlement. As long as I don't find out if you actually did insult me and I get quite hurt, I'm fine. I'll no, just, I don't, I'll, don't just live in, I'll just live in sweet, sweet, ignorant bliss. I don't think you did. I think you said you're lovely oh, right, and right. wonderful. Of course you did. And all these things that fan your ego. Yeah. 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 Time Tracks and Babylon 5 were great. <laughs> and I enjoyed the TV show of Time Cop, too. I didn't know until about two years ago that it was a comic at one point, so I may have to check that out. I have no clue about Manimal, but my thoughts go to the Mystery Science Theatre 3000 episode with Puma Man, and how horrible that would be if not for the commentary. Uh, yes, Babylon 5 is brilliant, because I am currently re-watching Babylon 5, and I'm midway through series 3. Brilliant, is it? Yes, it is, actually. Uh, I remember the definition of brilliant? Uh, a television show <laughs> written with an already existing five-year arc in place that the writer follows all the way through apart from the last season that he kind of rushed in season four because he thought he was going to get cancelled and then kind of had to jig it a bit to make season five work. Are you sure that's... That's the dictionary definition. Are you sure that's not undeterred? Uh, Wait, no, that's just Straczynski. Yes. Manimal's worth watching if you can't sleep. Uh, Now to what the episode was actually about. Oh yeah, I'd forgotten about that. Nightfall, Night's End. This was the first of the DC trade paperbacks that I bought in amongst a plethora of Marvels I was buying. I probably bought it because A, it was half price, and two... Because it was only part of the Nightfall trilogy I'd read and that they'd had. There's an A and a 2 there, Dave. <laughs> I'd love to think that he did that deliberately to confuse me, because yeah. it did. <laughs> I sat there then going, A, 2. Hmm. D, 2. Yes. <laughs> A, 2, D, 2. <laughs> he always says rude stuff that I think he does. Too, doesn't he? 
He's a, he's a bad it is. role model to kids. I'd known about the earlier parts as a friend had told me about it, and he just happened to have one handy. Needless to say, I enjoyed it and wanted to read more, but I was still having trouble finding somewhere that sold comics, so I wouldn't be able to, at least not for a while. I probably remember more about this part of the story than the rest, purely due to the fact that it's the only one I own. I also believe it was my introduction to the Tim Drake Robin and the Dick Grayson Nightwing. Speaking of Nightwing, I decided to start collecting a series about ten or so issues before it was cancelled, and he becomes Batman. I keep doing that. It happened with the Wally West Flash, and it happened with Young Justice, which I decided to start getting that after starting to get Graduation Day, but then found out it was being replaced with Teen Titans. I think you're just unlucky, Dev. Last thing, I really enjoyed the Shadow movie. We not only have Netflix Neil, Netflix from Voyager, <laughs> we not only have Neelix from Voyager killing himself, that's if you don't like it, but it has a guy bouncing off the corners of the Empire State Building following being forced to jump off it. Again, thanks for the great show, and as usual, your background music was excellently appropriate and appropriately excellent. <laughs> thanks, Dave. I appreciate that you appreciate the music. Yes, I lied about the last thing being the last thing since this is here, but I was just curious as to what you guys called a villain in Sonic the Hedgehog. I believe Michael mentioned what he calls him in the episode, which is why I asked, but I call him Robotnik. I also read a really good origin story for both him and the Blue Hedgehog hero in the Sonic the Comic series that is probably not used anywhere else but here. I don't call he's, the bad guy in Sonic the Hedgehog anything, because I don't know who he is. Dr. Robotnik, but he also called Eggman because... I am the Eggman. Designed after... You are the Eggman. Um, an American president. I am the walrus. I, for, I forget which one. Cuckoo, cuckoo. Though I read this the other day. Did you? Yeah, but oh. he was... Oh, it doesn't matter. Okay. It's just a US president designed to be in the shape of an egg. Okay, fair enough. And finally, email-wise, Luke Giaconetti sent in his traditional weekly email. Thank you, Luke. <laughs> Ciao, mi amica, Ilelans. What are you? I butchered that pronunciation, didn't I? I can write this show. Why? Well, do you remember when I said they should start doing it in different languages? Yes. Oh, yeah, well done. Yeah, excellent. I'm hoping Luke keeps that up. Yeah. Because he will eventually get to a language I can pronounce. Probably accidentally. I can predict the future. I, yeah. pre- I predict that next week we'll get another email from Luke. You reckon? Mm-hmm. Just finished listening to the first episode of your Night's End coverage. Talk about your flashbacks. It's a return to a simpler time in the world when Hey Kids Comics was essentially a Batman podcast. (laughs) Unfortunately, I have not read these issues, so I'm not really familiar with them, but I definitely intend to buy the trade paperback so that I can follow along. Maybe I'll buy it from my local used bookstore and then get mad when I go back to the store later and it's not the... He's not letting that go, no, is he? Not. <laughs> Regarding Action Force, Action Man, Andy, I'll hook you up with a little something soon enough. Winky smiley face. And regarding Robotech, believe it or not, there was actually three separate shows that were edited together into one narrative. Three major storylines of the show are each from a different anime, but they were packaged together for consumption in the West. The most well-remembered aspects, the Valkyrie robots, the early battles against the Zentradi, come from the show Macross, which is still popular today. I think I did know that. Okay. That the Macross saga was edited... Robotech was three different cartoons that they edited into one over here and made it a generational story. So you thought you were following the sons of the characters in the previous storyline. Mm-hmm. When in fact all they'd done is bought a bunch of separate cartoons and dubbed them with the same voices. Fair and enough. made it link together. I remember enjoying Robotech when I was... Uh, I don't know how old I'll have been then. I, was, I keep saying when I was a kid, but a lot of these things are when I was in my twenties. Because I'm because I'm old now. The Punisher Crawford, Crawford, 
The Punisher crossover sounds as lame as one would think. I must say that I really did love your use of the Terminator music in that sequence, however. Oh, great yeah, was, 80s was, apocalyptic synth sounding. I thought I... It you, was great. You, you liked that I did that, didn't did you? Did you use Intimacy? Intimacy! Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I did not use Intimacy. <laughs> I used a more appropriate track from the actual Brad Fidel soundtrack. You would have sent people not away from that that your... 80s abomination of a soundtrack that came out. Don't get me started on soundtracks that have pop songs on them. <laughs> inspired by the inspired by the film in what way? Oh, we've got this artist that we want to plug, so let's put him on the soundtrack. No. <laughs> anyway, sorry. To continue with Luke's email, Lady Shiva refers to the mask of Tango and calls it the spirit of the bat. Not sure where she got her information from, but the Tango is a bird. <laughs> is that true? Thanks, I did not know that, Lou. Thank you very much. In fact, the Tengu is the most well-known of the yokai, a series of supernatural legendary creatures from Japanese myth. They typically are harbingers of war and are often stylized on masks as a human with a very long nose. Maybe Lady Shiva doesn't know what she's talking about. Seems to be the moral either of this. Either Chuck Dixon doesn't oh, either that. Either that or, oh, well, we don't know who came up with the Mask of Tango. It first appeared in a Doug Mench issue, didn't it? Mm. So. The connection to the Order of St. Dumas and the Knights Templar is an interesting take. Unfortunately, in my mind, the Knights Templar would always be associated with some very gory and violent Italian horror movies. Is there any other kind of Italian <laughs> horror movie? As the Knights became something of a fad for a short time during the late boom of Italian horror in the late 70s, early 80s. It seems like there's an awful lot of material jammed into these stories, but it doesn't always come across in the most clear and coherent manner. I think that's a pretty much apt description of the entire Nightfall storyline. Mm. <laughs> Not always comes across in a clear and coherent manner. This feeling may or may not have been borne out when I actually read the issues, however. Yeah, if you're only going off our blame synopsis. We always edit bits, don't we? We do. Yeah, we get bored writing the synopsis. Synopsi. Manimal! That's a show I saw on reruns on the Sci-Fi Channel back in the day. You mentioned the returning of the clothes when he would change back into a man. This reminds me of the Hulk cartoon which ran in the early 80s, often paired with Spider-Man and his amazing friends, where Bruce Banner's lab coat and suit would shred when he would Hulk out, but magically return when he would change back. Yes, I do remember that. Mm. It was one of the reasons I didn't like that Hulk cartoon as a kid. Because, again, it was... Where have his clothes come from? Is it not because the... Editors kind of didn't want a big green massive dong on people. No, he still wore his clothes. <laughs> still had his pants on. My father always made a point of pointing that out when I would watch the show. Just a note, the song No Easy Way Out by Robert Tepper does yeah, not play in Rocky Four when he's chopping wood. It plays when he's driving the car. Yes, it? it's yeah. the training montage, yeah, which plays during the early montage after, spoilers, Apollo Creed dies. The song which plays during the training montage in Russia is, appropriately enough, Training Montage by Vince DiCola. I have the soundtrack on concert and I've had for a long, long time. Yeah, I had that soundtrack as well. I have fond memories of one Christmas where I just played Mario Kart and listened to the Rocky soundtrack all the time. Did we? No, I did. Oh, right, okay. Hey, if you guys do another Fantasticast podcast, can I please play Blaster? You can always be Blaster for me. <laughs> Michael had the line of the week for sure with, I'm naked. I don't even want to go back there, to be honest with you. Keep it up, dude. Looking forward to more Night's End, Luke. Thank you very much, Luke. Always it, nice you said you were to hear from you. I don't remember at this point. Fair enough. We recorded that a weeks ago. We did. We've moved on to other two things even. now. Yes, two whole weeks ago. Um, this week, Michael sent me a link from IGN. It was a very controversial link. It was a very controversial link. The, the 25 greatest Spider-Man stories did ever. Yeah, very good. 
by a guy called Joey Esposito. I'm not dissing on Joey Esposito. I don't Why know the man. I'm sure he's a lovely guy. But Michael sent me this, and I, it it couldn't pass without comment. Um, let's just cast our eye over this before we move on with our regularly scheduled portion of the show. <laughs> At number 25, Marvel Knights Spider-Man 1 to 12 by Mark Miller. Terry Dodson and Frank Cho. It's got some good artists. It's got some excellent artists. Unfortunately, it does not belong on the 25 greatest Spider-Man stories ever made. Favourite, maybe. Favourite, yeah. I would have no argument with this if this was his favourite list. Because favourite is subjective. Mm -hmm. So I'm down with that, as I proved. (laughs) Miller's story does not deserve to be on this list. And I'll tell you for why. This was in the period where Miller has decided that everybody sounds the same. Every single one of his characters speaks in that smart-ass, snarky voice so that you can move the word balloons and it would make no difference. Secondly, this is another one of Miller's I'm just going to tell somebody else's story over 12 issues so I can tell some trade paperback story. In this case, isn't he just redoing Born Again? Is it? I believe, I think this guy mentions that in the rewrite. It's been a while since I last read this. Um, So that does not belong on this list. Number 24, Negative Exposure, by Brian K. Vaughan and Staz Johnson. Which is in Spider-Man, Doctor Octopus 1 to 5. Is it? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, I've never heard of this story. I like Staz Johnson. And I like Brian K. Vaughan. I love Brian K. Vaughan. I'm a big fan of Saga. I'm a big fan of Why the Last Man. Runaways mm-hmm. was very, very good. Oh yeah, you're a big fan of Why the Last Man. That's I'm a big fan of read. the one that I've read, <laughs> and I do want to get back to it. Unfortunately, other things keep appearing. I have never heard of this series uh, which kind of implies that it's not on a list of wow that was a fantastic series and I suspect you've not heard of it yeah I'm pretty versed (laughs) in my Spider-Man I suspect this is on the list because Brian K. Vaughan is cool and this guy wants to be cool (laughs) so he's included a Brian K. Vaughan story I will have to track it down and read it to see if I change my mind number 23 it's The Conversation by J. Michael Straczynski and Jean Romita Jr. from Amazing Spider-Man, Volume 2, Number 38. Um, I'm torn on this one. On the one hand, one it's the one where Aunt May walks in on him and finds his spider costume in tatters after right. his first battle with Ezekiel. Right. And discovers that he's Spider-Man. On the one hand, it's an extremely well-written issue. And it's a good narrative story. Yeah. On the other, I don't know whether I would... I don't know if any greatest of Spider-Man stories. The greatest. There's some really? good issues, but mm, I'm torn on that one. Number twenty-two: How Green Was My Goblin? Spidey Saves the Day from Amazing Spider-Man thirty-nine and forty by Lee and Ramita. I don't think there's any arguments that that should be on the list. It deserves to be further up, though. You think? I enjoyed it. Think further be, yeah. up than number twenty. All right, number twenty-one: The Wedding from Amazing Spider-Man Real twenty-one and David Michelini and Paul Ryan. Right now, the first thing we need to get out of the way here. Here's Mr. Esposito here talking about the greatest, most important events in Spider-Man's life, or is he talking about greatest stories? Because Amazing Spider-Man Annual 21 is a piss-poor story. It has truly bad art. I don't blame Paul Ryan for this. It was inked by Vinnie Coletta. It's not a good issue by any means. It does not belong on any top ten greatest issues ever. Most important, yes, because Peter Parker marries Mary Jane. It's not a good story. So we'll move swiftly past that one. <laughs> 
Number 20, Rage of the Rhino, Endangered Species, from Amazing Spider-Man 617 and 625, by Joe Kelly, Max Fiumura, and Yavio Paludo. This was a quite a recent story, where the original rhino, Alexis... Insert generic Russian name here. Yeah, just put Ski at the end of it, and we're laughing. Um, These actually were two good issues, getting under the rhino's skin and exploring his character more than had previously been done. Greatest ever? Spider-Man stories? Really? Okay, fair enough. (laughs) All right. Number 19, Venom, from Ultimate Spider-Man 33 and 39. By Brian Bendis and Mark Bagley. That... Go on. Have your say. I really liked that. It's my favourite Ultimate Spider-Man story arc, but... There's the thing. Here's the thing. It's ultimate. Does it count in the... Should a cover version be on the best of songs ever? Some are. Johnny Cash's version of um, the Nine Inch Nails song. Hurt. Hurt is a magnificent version of that song. Yep. If you were doing the best songs ever... Would you put the Nine Inch Nails version on or the Johnny Cash one? Funny you should say that. Even if you decide to put that song on at all. Funny you should say that because earlier today I was in Tesco where I saw a magazine aptly named the 100 Greatest Songs of All Time. Was it NME? Don't know. Is it this week's NME? Could have been. Now I'm looking through this and the Johnny Cash version of Hurt was in there and Nine Inch Nails weren't even mentioned. See, uh, see, I have a problem with the cover version being in the best of. And this is a cover version. Um, Bendis' run on Ultimate Spider-Man was fun in that way that Bendis' stuff can be if you acknowledge that for the most part he's a god-awful boring writer. He's not a bad writer, before people write in and jump on top of me. He's a boring writer. What he thinks is pacing, I think he's padding. And all he's done here is take the Venom idea and rewrite it. I don't think that should be on a greatest list. Favourite? Again, we would have no issues. Greatest? Really? Is there any Venom story? Is the original Venom story on this? Um, no. Right. Number 18, Ultimate Fallout. Number one, by Bendis and Bagley. You can't say anything about this issue because it made you cry. Yes, it's an exceptionally (laughs) well-written issue about the death of the Ultimate Peter Parker. But... Greatest Spider-Man story ever? I think it's on there because the Call of Duty effect where it does something drastic for the sake of doing something drastic. That's what I'm saying. Is this a list of the most important events in the character's life? Or is this actually the greatest stories? That's not a great story. That's a fantastic scene. It's an exceptionally well-written scene. It's a good scene in a... In an issue, Ultimate Fallout number one, that is mediocre, yes. But in a bad series. Yes. Therefore, that's not the greatest story. Best scene... Mm. Possibly. One of the top moments, maybe. Best story? No, because it's one issue of Ultimate Fallout. As we've discussed before, that's not a story. Bendis doesn't write stories in single issues. Yeah, but it's not all Bendis, and it's not all Spider-Man. It's all Bendis. Is it? It's different artists. Oh, no, no, you're right, yeah. Those are issues of it are written by other writers. Mm. So, again, that negates it being included on this list. It's not a Spider-Man story. This is a Sp- Issue 1 was a Spider-Man story. Issue 1 was a collection of good moments... From an overall story that is not a Spider-Man story. Okay. Number 17, I'm with Stupid. Spider-Man Human Touch 1 through 5 by Dan Slott and Ty Templeton. I enjoyed this miniseries. 
I have no problems with it. I enjoyed it immensely. It has elements of fun. Racist. <laughs> it has elements of fun. Leave it at that. Yeah, it's it's not a bad five issue miniseries by any means. It covers the entire breadth of Johnny Storm and Peter Parker's relationships. It's fun because of that. Greatest. Mm. You've not read that, have you? Yeah, I've not, no. Number 16, the original Clone Saga. Amazing Spider-Man 139 to 150 by Jerry Conway and Ross Andrew. We have no argument, though. <laughs> I'm sorry, but we don't. Is that the right place for it, though? Um, yes. In fur to middling, in 25, around 16, yeah, the original Clone Saga. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm fine with the original Clone Saga being there. So, so far, Just we are at number 15... Good. And we've only had one Lee mm. story and one Ramita and no Ditko. Okie dokie. So, number 15 and Death Shall Come from Amazing Spider-Man 90 by Stanley and Gil Kane. The death of Captain George Stacey. Again, no argument with this. This should be in a greatest list. Absolutely no problem with that. <laughs> we do, however, have a major problem it was looking good for a while. with his next choice. Number 14, Shed. From Amazing Spider-Man 629 to 633 by Zeb Wells, Chris Bacalo and Emma Rios. Great art. Uh, if you've not read Shed... Don't bother. No, no, go and read it, please. Go and read it, because you will never be able to clean it from your brain. Isn't this the issue where Kurt Connors eats, eats his, his own son? Really? Best, greatest Spider-Man stories ever. Really, Mr. Esposito? <laughs> Number 13, The Commuter Cometh, The Amazing Spider-Man 267 by Peter David and Bob McLeod. A very good, very funny, offbeat fill-in issue where Spider-Man has to journey out into the suburbs where, of course, he's no good because he's got nowhere to swing and nothing to put his webs on. It's a very funny issue. It's an exceptionally well-written issue. Bob McLeod's a fantastic artist. Greatest ever Spider-Man story? <laughs> Favourite? Again? No issue, but not greatest. Number 12, No One Dies, from Amazing Spider-Man 655 and 656 by Dan Slott and Marcos Martin. The first issue is really good. Why? What's wrong with the second one? Because what made the first issue good was the art as well as the storytelling. Well, Marcos was, Martin's brilliant. It eh? was a very experimental um, comic which had you reading around and turning the comic upside down and following swirls. Right. Oh yes, I remember yeah. that one. Yeah. Whereas the second issue was just another generic Spider-Man tries to save the day issue. Right. So you don't think that should be on the greatest list then? No, I, the the first issue maybe, but the the story arc itself. No. Maybe. Okay. Number eleven. Nothing can stop the Juggernaut from Amazing Spider-Man two twenty nine and two thirty by Roger Stern and John Romita Jr. Uh, I have no issues with that one. I have a field of vendetta against RGM. Uh, no, 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 it's not a vendetta <laughs> against them. It's merely that he's billing this oh, as the oh. 25 greatest Spider-Man stories. Oh, of course that's And at that. number 10, Amazing Fantasy 15. In the 25 greatest Spider-Man stories ever, in the character's 50-year history, Amazing Spider-Man, Amazing Spider-Man, Amazing Fantasy 15 apparently comes in at number 10. I don't even think that's a great issue, and it's not me disliking Lee and Stitko, because I've read it, Lee and, Lee Lee and, Dick, Lee and Ditko, and I've read it several times, it's, just, it's an origin story. Yes, it's 
I will explain to you why it is one of the best Spider-Man stories ever. It was not my favourites, but it is one of the best. What? Contextually, mm-hmm. this had never been done before. Okay. Okay? Right. It was an anthology title. This was just a standard anthology title in a book that published like Twilight Zone knockoffs. Okay. This was obviously going on to something greater because the twist ending that Peter Parker was responsible for the death of his uncle mm-hmm. leaves it wide open for him to carry on with the strip in some way. Whereas most of those Twilight Zone type stories that Lee and Dick did, they ended. They were the end of the story. Secondly, there is a huge quantum leap though in storytelling in comics in that the central character is responsible indirectly but responsible for the death of his father figure this is earth shaking for the time for the time that it was done this is it's it's hard to quantify exactly how important that story is. So it's only the greatest in terms of comic books effect. It's therefore is one of the greatest stories because of that. Right. It should therefore be much higher up this goddamn list <laughs> than number ten. And you've got to remember as well, you know the story now. Peter David's told an excellent story on his website of he took his daughters watching the Spider-Man movie, and his youngest daughter gasped when Uncle Ben was shot and Peter found out that the guy who did it was the guy you could have caught earlier on because hmm. she didn't know the story okay. so she was actually shocked by that moment so that's something else Can you know this by now I everybody know knows yeah everybody that knows I would have thought Peter Davis' children would have known yeah well that's what surprised him as well he thought they knew it but right. they didn't number nine if this be my destiny Amazing Spider-Man 31 through 33 by Lee Ditko. We have no issues with that one. It's the master plan of story. Number eight, best of enemies, Spectacular Spider-Man 200 by DiMatteis and Sal Buscema. Now, let's get one thing out of the way, first of all. You said before this isn't the greatest. We love Spectacular Spider-Man 200. Mm-hmm. Or I did. I enjoyed it. Okay, so I have no problem with it being on the list. Better than Amazing Spider-Man 31 through 33? Really? I don't think so. Number seven, Spider-Man No More from Amazing Spider-Man 50. Um, yes. Me personally, greatest Spider-Man stories again are we talking about most important in the character's history? Because mm. that's a pivotal issue in terms of importance. In terms of greatest stories, it's not really as good as some of the other stuff. Not really, no. It's a, it's a fun issue. Mm. It's a fine issue that has been elevated above its status by its reputation. I personally don't think it's Lee and Ramita at their best. It's got some fantastic artwork, though. Number six, Craven's Last Hunt by DeMatteis and Mike Zeck from Web of Spider-Man 31-32, Amazing Spider-Man 293-294, and Spectacular 131-132. Generally regarded as a classic. All right, I'll give you that. I didn't enjoy it. I'm, mm, I'm fur to middling on Craven's Last Hunt. I don't mm. loathe it. I don't think it's a very good Spider-Man story as evidenced by the fact that before it was a Spider-Man story it was a Batman story that got rejected he's not in it and he's not in it much so I mean I'll give it him because I know it's generally regarded it's held in high esteem just not by me and so let's let's have a look at the final one should we number five to have and to hold Sensational Spider-Man Annual 1 by Matt Fraction and Salvador La Roca I've not read it it's very good is it Mm. it's more of one of the greatest Spider-Man stories ever no, and it shouldn't be here. It's a retelling of Peter's and Mary Jane's history through both of their perspectives. Mm. But it's set during the height of the Civil War, and Peter's on the run. 
and right. MJ's being held hostage by S.H.I.E.L.D. Alright, well I need to read that then. It's the only story on the list other than the um, negative exposure one I've not read. What attracted me to it was the image they use on this hmm. to show it off was part of was Kisada did in the double page spread in One More Day which is my favourite piece of Kisada artwork. Right. Okay. Number four, The Death of Gene DeWolf from Spectacular Spider-Man 107 to 110 by Peter David and Rich Buckler. No arguments about that being on the list. I don't know if I would position it that high up. Number three, The Kid Who Collects Spider-Man from Amazing Spider-Man 248 by Roger Stern, Ron Friends and Terry Austin. No argument about that one being on the list. Number two, (laughs) Spider-Man Blue, one through six by Jeff Lode and Tim Sale. Right. It's good. It's excellent. Excellent art. It's got fantastic artwork. Mm -hmm. It's use of continuity makes your brain explode if you've read the original lead Ramita issues because you're sat there going this didn't happen in this order this couldn't happen in this order why are you doing this to me Mr. Loeb and it's I've not read it so the have you not read Spider-Man Blue no I've read Spider-Man Blue I've not read the lead Itco stuff so continuity's fine isn't it um in terms of the Colours trilogy it is by far the best of the three yeah it's better than Hulk Grey it's better than Daredevil Yellow as we've established, the artwork is gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Tim Sale. I've got this autograph, haven't I? You have. I've got this autograph by Tim Sale, who we met. Mm-hmm. Who was a lovely man. You, you met him. I, I, I met watched him, him draw. You, you watched him draw. It's a cover version. And thus we move on. But if you are going to do the original, how many issues is that? Well... And it's... See, he's saying it's the greatest... of covers as well as... He's saying it's the greatest story in Spider-Man history but it's just riffing on stories other people have written Mm. so for me that shouldn't be on a greatest list if you're going to pick them stories pick them as they originally appeared then yeah number one The Night Gwen Stacy Died from Amazing Spider-Man 121-22 I'm fine with that I have no problem with this being on the list but again is this the most pivotal events in the character's life or is it greatest stories well it's my favourite yeah I have no problem with this being on the list I don't necessarily think it should be number one but I have no problem with it being on the list. Um, so we've dissed all over the IGN thing. <laughs> we felt the need to do that. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with New Frontier. Gathered together from the far reaches of the internet are assembled a network of podcasts dedicated to the first and greatest superhero, Superman. Superman. The Superman Podcast Network is dedicated to covering all aspects of the Superman legend, featuring The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, Golden Age Superman, The Superman Fan Podcast, Superman in the Bronze Age, From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast. I've got a few things to say about Superman. The Superman Vidcast, the world's best podcast, and Radio Kale from supermanhomepage.com. As well as the audio dramas Superman, Last Son of Krypton, and Supergirl, Last Daughter of Krypton from Pendant Audio Productions. Join hosts Michael Bradley, John Wilson, Billy Hogan. Charlie Niemeyer, J. David Weeder, Jeffrey Taylor, Michael Bailey, Scott Gardner, Cayman Stoll, I'm Isaac, I'm Adam, Dave Eunice, and co-host Scotty V. At supermanpodcastnetwork.com. And we're back. I'm in a Toys R Us shopping spree. 
What? I spent, I spent right, winter toys are a shopping spree. Under cover of a comic yeah. I've just won on I, eBay. Yeah. I spent half my childhood life reading these comics you gave me going, now what would I buy in a toys are a shopping, shopping spree? <laughs> oh dear. Uh, back to the meat of the episode. Uh, for the next few weeks, we'll be covering DC The New Frontier, Darwin Cook's unabashed love letters to the DC Universe. Firstly, I think we need to be upfront and say that this will not be a mediation on the history and continuity of the DC Universe. This is not the type of show for that, as I don't really feel qualified to do it. I grew up with a Marvel kid, and have a much more in-depth knowledge of the Marvel Universe as opposed to the DC Universe, and Michael is much more modern in his knowledge and reading. What this will be is a look at this story in its own right. Does it stand as a piece of work? Is it entertaining? And how well was it adapted into the animated movie that we will be covering when we finish covering the comics? DC's New Frontier came out in single issue form, albeit in bookshelf format with 64 pages per issue, from January 2004 to September 2004, and was quickly reprinted as two trade paperbacks in 2005. I didn't read it then. I'll be honest, I completely missed the boat on New Frontier. I thought it was going to be another continuity-heavy DC miniseries attempting to reconcile events written years apart by different writers into a cohesive whole in such a way that missed the spirited intent of those early stories. And then I started hearing good things about the series. And then I started hearing great things about the series. And then it came out in absolute format. Now... Because I in that order. Yeah. People had to warm up to them first. Yeah. Reviews didn't so much like it, and then all of a sudden, next yeah. week it was great. <laughs> I don't know about that. I just know that I, I started hearing really nice things about it. Um, I'd never had a DC Absolute at the point that this was purchased. This was the me. first one this we had. This was the first Was it the first was one it? we had full stop? We got one each that Christmas. Did we? You got yours first, though. I got mine later that day. What did you get? Kingdom Court? Justice. Justice. I had numerous Marvel omnibuses. But the absolutes, although very handsome, mm. are exceptionally expensive. Very pricey. Very pricey. So I put it on my wish list on Amazon and thought more of it, thinking that I'd get the trades for cheap at some point. However, the awesomeness that is my wife, because <laughs> she is pretty awesome, that has to be said. Every Christmas takes a look at my wish list and gets me a big prezi. And, and talk, then the Christmas... And, and, and says, Michael, come, come on, Freya. <laughs> <laughs> do you liaise? I do. Okay. And in the Christmas of 2009, it was the absolute of this story. It is, beyond the shadow of a doubt, a gorgeous piece of work. For those that haven't seen the absolute, they come in a slipcase, which in this case features a wraparound piece of Darwin Cook art. Exclusive for the... Are they, are they always exclusive mm-hmm. for the absolute? Of the main protagonists of this story, Green Lantern, Flash, Superman, Batman, etc., running past the camera. It's coloured with dots to evoke the old printing press feel of bygone comics, and it's noticeable because Wonder Woman is smiling a huge grin and everyone has squinty Joe Shuster eyes. Notable straight off the bat is Coop's interpretation of the characters. They all have the muscular build of 50s and 60s era tough guy actors like Kirk Douglas and Charlton Heston. They're all obviously in good shape, sure, but they have broad shoulders and barrel chest and thick set waists as opposed to the overly muscled bodybuilder types of today. The biggest difference is Wonder Woman, who's drawn with a very Marilyn Monroe-esque figure. All curvy hips and large breasts with good solid thighs. I approve wholeheartedly. <laughs> Place that back down there. The funny thing with the slipcase is King Faraday, who's an integral character of the story, is completely cut off by the fold. Yes, he is. He is quite important to the to the story, isn't it? The actual cover 
of the absolutely silver, with a posed shot of all the central protagonists that is simply beautiful. The back cover is the same, but a different pose. Yeah, it's the, f- the front cover is the cover for Volume One, the graphic novel, and the back cover is Volume Two. Right, uh, they look really good because no cover copy blights the artwork. Mm. I always like as well that Batman stood at the back in both, in both. of them. He's not uh, front and centre in any of them. The story is set from the periods of 1945 to 1960. And unlike the comics, written in those times, can use the intervening years to create a rich backdrop to the tales and there are frequent references to the times and the political upheaval. The title is a reference to a speech regarding the incoming 1960s by then-presidential candidate John F. Kennedy, and this sets Cook's stall out early on. The blurring of the lines between fantasy and fiction is something that will continue throughout the entire series. Unless you have something to say about the absolute format in general. That picture on the inside cover is exclusive to this. Is it? So there's another exclusive piece of art, and then there's... Well, I would imagine most of the artwork's exclusive. There's a, a foreword by Paul Levitz before the, the, the story actually starts. to the uh, issue. Is it? Mm. Chapter 1, Analog Heroes, begins with a saga cell similar to the opening crawl of the old serials, informing us that after World War II, the Allies swiftly appropriated the best of the German scientific minds, and one such scientist disappears over the ocean. Four remarkable men, veterans of the war now working for the OSS, are dispatched to find the scientist. They are called the Losers. Da, 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 da. <laughs> are they kind of A-team-esque? Kind of, yeah. Alright, fair enough. Uh, the Pacific in 1945. A man in a cave with a dog and tons of guns and ammo writes on the wall of the last mission of the Losers. In a flashback, we learn that the Losers found the island the scientist and commando team went down on, but were tossed ashore and their transportation wrecked by a huge tidal wave. Beaten and battered but not down, the Losers, Captain Storm, Sergeant Peterson, Johnny Cloud, Gunnar Wilson and Pooch the Dog soon learn the island is populated by dinosaurs. The ensuing battle sees the team lose Gunnar Peterson and they bury him on the island. Continuing their search, a fleet of pterodactyls attack and the team lose Captain Storm. Cloud returns to the cave and finds Colonel Rick Flagg, one of the commando team. He tells Cloud that Sergeant Peterson is also dead. As a member of the Nahavo, Cloud believes the power of the four, as his tribe believes that there are no power in the one. Flag says that his team is dead, but he has Dr. Tesla's notes. Cloud assists him to a boat, but stays on the island with Pooch to finish the mission that took his teammates and friends. Pooch is taken out by a booby trap, ironically planted by Flag, and Cloud is injured. Deciding he is taking the beast that killed his team with him, Cloud pops the pin on two grenades and jumps into the mouth of the dinosaur. What an excellent first chapter. Was that the first chapter? I think so. I thought it carries on. Well, it kind of bleeds over into other sections. I've split it up where the story ends before chapter two begins. Um, The OSS that we mentioned in the crawl uh, was the Office of Strategic Services, which was created in World War II and was the US version of our secret intelligence service and was used by the Allies in the war to help officers infiltrate German facilities. It was the precursor to the CIA. That will come in useful later, seeing as it's King Faraday Mm. works for the CIA, doesn't he? Uh, the Losers first appeared in GI Combat before being given their own strip in Our Fighting Forces 123 in 1970. They have little in common with the recent Vertigo series and film of the same name. Though I must confess I enjoyed the movie a lot more than I enjoyed The Expendables. I think I enjoy anything more than Expendables. Which I thought was an unusual title for a film where nobody seemed to be expendable. I'd, I'd enjoy being beaten around the head than watching Expendables. Okay, well Charisma Carpenter was in it, I suppose. Yeah, but even she was crap in it. No, it was so crap even what's-his-face was bad in it. Jason 
Jason Statham. Even Jason Statham. Even was Jason bad in Statham it. was bad in it, and Jason Statham's watchable in everything. Yeah. Uh, the opening few pages of the boat being tossed ashore are simply magnificent. Uh, Cook's Bruce Tim style artwork is simple and clean, yet utterly cinematic, the best way that comics can be. Again, it's here where you see that an artist with an elegant and simple style is in no way simplistic and just has to be a good artist, because he can't rely on speed lines and flashbang to convey the intensity of his artwork. Well, you can tell you like this art because um, the approach of storytelling and this is what you complain about in a 22-issue story. Yes, because that's been sold as a 22-issue story. That's not a story, that's a prelude to a story. It's a bit of a story. It's a tiny bit of a story. Even it's chapter X in an X part story. See, this is the thing we're on about. This is paced. It's yeah. not padded. Each issue of this tells a story that builds to an overall. Certainly in the first three issues... There's no connection. Really. Later on, you will start seeing that there were connections all the way through. Yeah, and as you get into 4, not. 5 and 6 you start realising that it is all one big story. But for issue one of this tells a story. Yeah. And it tells it well. And I don't feel ripped off at 65 pages either. Whereas in 22 pages, they're probably like, what? <laughs> um, I'm, I'm also a bit struggling to see how the plane of that size can knock a fairly large boat miles towards the island and then even further inland. Just look. Yeah. <laughs> it's a big tidal wave. They needed to get where they were going. Um, page 14... And we will be going off the pages in the absolute, just for our ease of reference. Yeah. I adored that the losers all look like the stereotype war heroes of the old movies. One of them even has an eye patch, <laughs> which I thought was genius. And he just stops, apparently, where it reaches his hairline. Yeah, well, that's just the way of things, isn't it? Mm. Uh, page 17, the full page splash of the losers meeting the T-Rex and the quick death of Gunnar Peterson that follows. It's not Gunnar Peterson, it's Gunnar Wilson. And the quick death of Gunnar Wilson that follows are excellent. Cook, once again, showing what I always believed. If a creator, comic, movie, whatever, sincerely believes in the material, you can do anything and the audience will go along with it. Here we have the incongruity of a T-Rex versus World War II era army personnel. And we buy into it totally. Well... The island the losers find themselves on is Dinosaur Island, which was the setting of the war time, the the, the story of the war that time forgot that ran through Star Spangled War stories. And they actually call one of the chapters later on, don't they? The war that time forgot. Mm. As we get further into the storyline, in the new um, DC, they've merged the two books together into GI Combat, which oh, is, is on Dinosaur Island. Is it? Mm. Well, I may have to read that because I've not read any GI Combat. Um, Captain Storm. Being carried away by the pterodactyl is a pretty awesome image. <laughs> not for um, not for Captain uh, Storm. Storm, yeah. No, it's 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 probably no fun for him. But uh, I, I did I really quite enjoyed that. And Johnny Cloud almost falls off the cliff running after him. Uh, page thirty. Colonel Flag looks like looks like actor Robert Forster. If you get a chance, Google Robert Forster. He's in the black hole. See, I just thought if you put an eye patch on him, he looks like Nick Fury. He does. He is very Nick Fury-esque. Mm. I think that. I do like the lighting on that page. Yeah, the lighting. On th- the, we are not going to say enough nice things mm. about the art in this. Because if the art wasn't good enough, the colouring is. Yeah, the colouring's fantastic. It's just a, a gorgeous package. It's me stroking it this week isn't it mm. not you it's much better in absolute form yeah well I think the, the absolutes are the, the omnibuses and the treasury editions are the saviour of print because mm. I've read some of this digitally because it's easier to take the digital copy with me to make notes at dinner time yeah and it just doesn't compare to reading this 
this is just gorgeous the art's brilliant the colouring's brilliant the paper's not that ultra glossy stuff that you can't read properly it's just fantastic I panic whenever I'm reading something like that like you're walking dead hardbacks whenever I'm reading it because it's all black yeah. and it's always glossy I always leave it behind fingerprints yeah and you, your fingerprints are all over it yeah. I did like that Cook makes no concessions to political correctness the losers call them Japs and Flag calls Cloud an Indian. Well, isn't that part of the story as well? Yes, part of the story is being able to overcome your prejudices. Mm. Do you reckon and he had to fight against DC editors to get to be able to say that? He doesn't mention that in the his notes at the end. There mm. are things that he does mention he had to fight with DC over. Yeah. And some things they overruled him on. But he doesn't mention that that's, that was one of them. Um, I'm probably going to bang on about the art, but by God, it's awesome. Page 34 is particularly gorgeous and I don't know why it's a shot of Cloud sat in front of a fire mm. with the dog he's doing one of those vision quests that Native Americans do it's kind of a Native American world scratchy style yeah well. and it's it, the middle panel is the rifles of his three fallen comrades with the hats on which is gorgeous and then the final panel is Johnny Cloud and Pooch hunting down the dinosaur I do like it whenever the dinosaur's in it because you know it's big, mm. even though it's small in that panel. Yeah, it's the way he's drawn it, it's quite clear that it's it's bloody huge. Mm. Even oh, though, you know that T-Rex is resembled birds rather than lizards. Yeah, well, that's, is that a new discovery? I don't know. The, the, the more, they were more bird-like than lizard-like. It's a shame about Pooch. Yeah. I felt a bit sorry about what happened to Pooch. Well, I read somewhere, probably in the back of this, that Cook intended Cloud to go... Um, a different way um, but was so interested on having him ironically be killed by one of their own traps so he, and he changed it to this yeah as I think that is in the back of this book isn't it mm. um, John Cloud's final splash page the shot of him diving into the open moor of the T-Rex on page 38 <laughs> it'd be funny if you missed and just it's, how could you miss that that is simply stunning um, the way we see the stuff that we saw on the previous page of the hats on the butts of the guns that are all stuck in the floor acting as their gravestones. We see them all in silhouette as John Cloud dives into the maw of the dinosaur. He pops the pins off the two grenades that he's holding in each hand. And then we see the explosion. So the light lights up all the graves of the people that have already died. It's comic sequential storytelling at its best. It's it's utterly fantastic. I love that shot of Cloud diving into the dinosaurs more. I love the shot of the explosion lighting up the graves. It's ah, uh, it's just such an awesome introduction to the series, and the art's simply gorgeous. If you grew up watching the Dirty Dozen or Kelly's Heroes or Where Eagles Dirt, this is the dog's bollocks. Mm. It's a really good opening chapter. We get everything in this story a fan of war movies and comics could want. We get a heroic final mission, which actually turns out to be not be that heroic. We get the iconic cubic image of the hats of the fallen servicemen resting on their weapons over the graves. Plus, dinosaurs. <laughs> How can you not love dinosaurs? I love this first chapter. I really did. I thought it was an exceptionally well done. It does, like Michael say, it feels disconnected from the rest of the material, doesn't it? Mm. Until you get to about chapter three. Not chapter, sorry, issue three. The chapters are... Where they revisit it. Yeah, where they revisit it later on. What did you think of that one? I enjoyed it. I thought it was an excellent opening. Because mm. it was so totally not what I was expecting from this. 
you're expecting a what I'd heard of it this big 50s take on superheroes so to get that as the opening chapter you're expecting the JSA yeah exactly right and to get that as your opening chapter Mm. and then be blown away by it it's very broad with its characters and stories it includes yeah it's kind of like you get the impression that Cooks thought this may be the only time I get to do this so I'm going to throw everything in it because it it may just be me but I'm pretty sure that um, the losers in the wall at time forgot a pretty old obscure DC stories that aren't considered well aren't thought of anymore no well I don't know to be honest with you I don't know I think the losers are probably more famous now for the vertigo well the original ones yeah Yeah. because didn't Kirby work on the losers for a bit yeah uh, after that, but before Chapter 2, we get a few pages detailing the end of World War II and the rise of the Red Scare in the US in the 50s, with the JSA accused of being un-American and disbanding all under the cloak of nationalistic propaganda and the rise of the Cold War. We see the first appearance of the Spectre, cut off from earthly affairs, Captain Marvel, portrayed as a puppet of the sister, and the Batman, a shadowy cloaked figure evading capture. The Suicide Squad are the challenges of the unknown handle of domestic emergencies, whilst Wonder Woman and Superman enforce US policy abroad. And yet, where are the next generation of heroes? Turns out, on Edwards Air Force Base, circa 1948, the race to beat the communists to space has led to a team of jet jockeys, fighter pilots with the right stuff. Young Hal Jordan has snuck out to meet his hero, Chuck Yeager, over at famed watering hole Pancho's Palace. Yeager tells Jordan that his father was a fine pilot and autographs Lil Hal's homemade fighter jet, which was the end of part one. Uh, This was more of an epilogue of sorts to the heroism of the World War II era and the rise of suspicion and propaganda in the 50s. Yet in Cook's hands, this also becomes a prelude to another more optimistic time, the Atomic Age. Chuck Yeager is a real test pilot and genuine war hero and was the first man to break the sound barrier and Pancho's place a real watering hole at Edwards Air Force Base. This blurring of the lines between fantasy and fiction can often be cloying or irritating, but Cook gives it just the right sense of wide-eyed wonder. Well, it's mentioned here that Hitler had control of the sphere of destiny and, that, and that's what's keeping superheroes out of the Great War, which was mentioned a great deal in All-Star Squadron and was a way that fictional characters, the superheroes like Superman, couldn't get involved in real events. Right. Say Superman just couldn't fly over there and punch Hitler in the jaw. Although it would be fun. It would be fun. There, there is a Bendis issue I've read recently where it's like, well, we can't exactly do with some... They were talking about Norman Osborn. So we can't exactly go and kill Hitler, can we? And Captain America sat there going, I did. <laughs> um, but in reality, according to the accounts of Dr. Walter Stein, the young Hitler, whilst living in Vienna, was studying the occult and had possible spiritual mentor. Uh, Stein got to know Hitler because of the uh, mutual interest in the Spear of Destiny which was a relic on display in the Habsburg treasure at the Hofs Museum in Vienna uh, that was said to have powerful talismanic power, having been used to wound the side of Christ at the crucifixion. According to the legend, possession of the spear would grant the owner the power to conquer the world, but losing it would bring immediate death. On the 12th of March 1938, the day Hitler annexed Austria, he arrived in Vienna conquering, uh, as a conquering hero. And uh, his first port of call was the Hofstra Museum, where he took possession of the spear and immediately sent it to Nuremberg, which was the spiritual capital of Nazi Germany. 
at 2.10 on the 30th of April 1945, after considerable bombing of Nuremberg, the Spear fell into possession of American 7th Army under General Patton. Later that day, fulfilling the legend, Hitler committed suicide. Is that the real legend of the Spear of Destiny? That's the real legend of the Spear of Destiny. All oh, right, because Hitler's interest in the occult is well yeah. known, and is obviously the premise for Raiders of the Lost Ark. Mm. With the Ark of the it Covenant. It was funny that a week, well, not a week, but a few days before I started reading that, I was at Singleton's and he had a book called Nazis and uh, the Occult. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> Should have borrowed it. So I just sat there and read it whilst he was playing um, Dungeons and Dragons. Oh yeah, fair enough. That's you all over that, though, isn't it? I'll just sit and read this book. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, there's also a slight continuity of multiverse error here. Yeah. Um, I know this is a retelling of the DCU origin, but uh, we see later in this we see Barry Allen reading the Flash because um, the Flash, the earlier Flash in this, is a comic character. But we also see the Justice Society here as real people, and we know they're real because the comics are based on a real person, but in another Earth. Yes. Right. Whereas in this, there is no parallel Earths. Yeah, so he's reading a co- it, it, It's either a mistake, or the comics are based on a real person. I can buy that. I can buy that in this particular take on this story, all Flash comics were based on Jay Garrick, because he didn't have a secret identity, did he? No. So it's perfectly acceptable that there were Flash comics, hmm. like propaganda World War II comic books, with the Flash in them. Yeah. I can buy that. Which gets this off the hook, but we like to see a Fleischer Superman. Yes, John Johns later on is watching the Fleischer Superman cartoons at the cinema, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> Which is just a nice little, you know, a nice little touch, I thought. Uh, very interesting, thank you very much. Chapter 2, State of the Union Suit, takes place in Gotham City in 1952. Our man is chased across the rooftops of Gotham by the police and in the course of the chase falls to his death. Irish West reports that this is the latest in a series of roundups of prominent individuals, and only heroes registered with the FBI can continue to operate. Rather than capitulate to the demands of Congress, the JSA simply disappear, while Superman and Wonder Woman are recruited by President Nixon to round up the remaining masked vigilantes who do not give in. Superman's confrontation with the Batman comes down on the side of the Batman, who uses a chemical of unknown origin to escape the Man of Steel. That's important. That will come into play later on. In Paris, Task Force X, a.k.a. The Suicide Squad, led by Colonel Rick Flagg, are unrepentant in the vilification of master vigilantes, having taken down a communist stronghold. But the news is tainted by the revelation that our man was Rex Tyler, a quintessential American flawed hero. Does that feel like Civil War to you? It, do you mean Mark Miller has took somebody else's idea to write a story around it? I'm shocked. Civil War shocked, was, I tell Civil you. Civil War was before this. I think it was. Where was Civil War 2007? No, it would have been five or six. Would this predates that then? Wasn't this 2004? Was it? Yeah. Uh, I think so. I think this predates Civil War. Um, apart from the first two pages of this admittedly short chapter, it's taken up by a newspaper story, giving a lot of backstory to the series. There are some simply gorgeous pieces of artwork in this chapter, all in yellow sepia in the omnibus to give the feel of an old-time newspaper. Is it not in the actual issue? I think it's black and white in the actual issue. Right. 
I think. The widescreen shots beginning the piece on pages 48 through 49, three panels across each page, are all shot from below looking up in between the alleyways of Gotham at the full moon, and we only hear what happens to our man as the camera remains stationary. When we turn to the page to see a full-page splash simulated photograph of our man's death, complete with the four policemen that died with him but taken from the roof of the building, the effect is visually stunning. I got a real Matt Wagner vibe from that piece and the layout's incredibly vivid and almost 3D. Uppermost in the picture is an hourglass and bottom left a policeman's cap and then layered almost perfectly the figures all at different heights and below the alley with the waiting police cars. The grayscale tones add wonderfully to the image. My only issue is that the caption says this takes place in Gotham City but the article in the paper says that they were Coast City policemen which confused me a bit. Mm. There is that, but who, who the hell stops on the roof and takes a picture of all the friends dying? Um, I would imagine that there is a news. There's a newspaper photographer following them. So he falls and dies too? No, he doesn't fall. He makes the leap, but his hat falls. Right. That's a photographer because he's holding a camera on page 49. So he makes the jump, so he's the guy who takes that photo. So he's taking that whilst jumping? No, he's just taking that from the roof, presumably. Because he's not leaping there because he's not in the middle. Yeah. Do you get me? He's stood on this rooftop. So the photographer's taking that photo, yes, of people dying. That um, um, our man falls first and yet he's the highest up. Um, does he fall first, though? Yeah. Because we don't see him fall. That's the point. So... We don't know how our man and the police fall. So is that image in the article... A different alleyway than... No, it's the same... Well, it's two or three buildings across because they leap one building there, so that's one alleyway. Yeah. And then... But it's all the same in those panels. Yes, but the camera doesn't move. So we don't know if they make another jump later or if the police catch him and tackle him and in the fight they fall fall off the roof. We don't know any of that. It looks like a different alley as well with it being wider and the other building much shorter. It could be they could have traversed a couple of rooftops though, we don't know. Mm. But it's still a a gorgeous piece of artwork, isn't it? Uh, Again, we get the real world fictional world juxtaposition juxtaposition with a lot of play being given to the McCarthy hearings and the House of Un-American Activities Commission and blending this with the presence of superheroes and perhaps layering it with the subtext that the masked heroes fought in World War II on our side as did the Russians in real life. I do have a problem with Superman and Wonder Woman being used by Nixon and Huac to round up vigilantes. Aside from the fact that neither of them are technically American... I have a real problem with the Superman who's been used as a puppet of the current administration, whatever that administration may be, and have done ever since the Dark Knight Returns established that Superman was a government lapdog. My Superman would never condone the witch hunts of the McCarthy era blindly, just like he would never follow anyone if he had problems with it. Sometimes the most patriotic thing you can do is stand up to your government. Fortunately, Cook seems well aware of this. Hmm. And later on in the story, we will find that all is not as it seems in regards to that particular development. Having said that, the simulated photograph of the Batman fighting Superman just before he's about to throw the vial of whatever it is in Superman's face has a very animated series vibe to it, doesn't it? Hmm. And again, another wonderful splash patch. Uh, see, it's funny how Superman's punch shattered the floor, but Batman's jaw remained intact. <laughs> well, again... That is, I'll explain later on. Mm -hmm. So, um, stay tuned with that thought. 
because that does come into play in a bit. The image of the Suicide Squad on page 54. Victorious in Paris, however, just made me laugh. Team America World Police has, has just ruined that, hasn't it? Because it spoofed it so wonderfully, so it's very hard now to change the... Uh, to treat the demolition of Paris mm. with a straight face. I always think of puppet sex. <laughs> Which is just wrong. That was a good chat to that, wasn't it? I like that that was all newspaper. Yeah. I like that it was all... A lot of interesting background. Mm. Very interesting. You know, the, the Eiffel Tower wasn't supposed to uh, stick around as long as it did. But it's still there? It was supposed to be built just for um, an expo. Was it? It just stayed there. Oh, right. Okay. No, I did not know that. Who says they don't teach you anything at school? <laughs> it's very impressive. Uh, chapter 3, Heavy Traffic in Mig Alley, which is a great title. Yep. I just like that title. It's just so poetic. I really like that title. July 27th, 1953. Just hours after the signing of the armistice ending the Korean War, Colonel Ace Morgan and Ehrman Hal Jordan are attacked by three Korean MiGs unaware of the cease of hostilities. Under heavy fire, Hal is forced to eject, but is unable to deploy his parachute after being knocked unconscious by aircraft debris. Morgan disengages the enemy, loops his aircraft over Jordan and ejects himself, hoping to catch Jordan in mid-air and then activate Jordan's chute for him. He manages to snag Jordan's ripcord and the chute snaps open, pulling Jordan away. Jordan lands in North Korea, right on top of a North Korean soldier taking a sneaky fag break. Receiving word of the downed soldier, an H-5 series of Huey Chopper taking two press passengers to safety, diverts to pick up Hal Jordan. The members of the press, Lois Lane and cub reporter Jimmy Olsen, are taken along for the ride. Jordan spots the rescue chopper and pops off a floor, but also eyeballs the Korean platoon his unconscious playmate must be part of. With the chopper unarmed and coming in for landing, Jordan readies his service revolver, but before he can act, the Korean soldier comes to and sneak attacks. The Korean platoon also seems unaware that the war is over and fire on the rescue chopper, giving the pilot no choice but to lob some grenades at them. Jordan, unable to remember the basic Korean necessary to communicate, has no choice but to kill the Korean soldier after close quarters combat. Jimmy pulls Jordan to freedom and the helicopter takes off. As the chopper rises to a chorus of gunfire, Jordan responds to Lois's question in Korean. It's over. Make war no more. Ah! Another excellent little war movie from Darwin Cup with stunning artwork. Again, the title references real-life situations. The MiG was a Soviet-built jet fighter, stock footage of which was destroyed by Airwolf every other week, whilst the alley was a stretch of the Yulo River in Korea. The opening pages, 55 through 62, where Jordan and Morgan under attack, is a simply stunning action sequence, beautifully paced and really exciting. I'm John Morgan and Morgan and Jordan. <laughs> um, I, I do like um, this Hal who puts himself on the line and refuses to kill anyone, which is completely different origin to the one where he's self-centred asshole who got himself arrested for drink driving. Is that... Was that post-crisis? Yes. Was that the post-crisis Green Lantern origin? Yeah. Um, what was it called, that? Emerald. Emerald Dawn. Yeah. Yes, we've got that, haven't we? We've read we that. Do, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, well... See, I haven't made that connection, to be honest with you. Yeah, but I suppose you're right. Hal is a lot more heroic in this. Mm. Uh, the full-page splash of Lois and Jimmy on page 63 in South Korea is simply stunning, reminiscent of the film MASH. Uh, Lois looks gorgeous. Okay. Do you not know think he's really good at drawing women? <laughs> of, of this era? Yes, of the 50s and 70s. We all know 60s women are the sexiest women have ever been. 
That is an established fact. And I will brook no argument on that topic. Now, I'm not sure about Lois in this, though. Why? Well, because she's surrounded by thousands of soldiers who've been living in trenches, having little showers, and when they do have one, it's cold water and eating rations, while she's eating oranges and complaining about needing a hot bath. <laughs> See, Lois Lane I grew up with was followed Superman's approach and put other people's needs before her own. Mm. I see your point. I think one could argue she's probably been here for a while at this point. Mm. So she's probably been in the trenches and smells a bit. And she's only complaining about this, you could probably argue, because the war's over. She knows she's going home. Yeah. I need a bath. I, I can buy into that. I don't know about the eating oranges thing. Maybe she... I mean, maybe they just give, maybe they're just trying to get in her pants. <laughs> Which is fair enough, isn't it? You're a GI, you've been in Korea for six months. She's a bit of skirt. If you're Colossus, you forget your girlfriend's face a few days in. Yes, exactly right. Um, the POV shot of Hal waking up in the parachute on page 65 is fantastic. As you see, the first panel is just a little slit down the middle of his feet, and then it opens wider, and then he realises that he's coming down in some trench, and you only see his feet and his crotch, obviously. But the focus isn't on that, no. unlike those issues of Spider-Man where we saw a lot of his bottom. I've... I love that he takes out the Korean soldier by accident. Yeah. He just lands on him, <laughs> which is hysterically funny. I find it difficult to believe that Jordan went through the entire Korean War as a fighter pilot without killing anybody, but it does play into the sadness of the ending that after the war was over and he had accomplished that, mm. he had to kill somebody to survive. It's a beautifully affecting ending. I really liked it. Maybe he just flew over and went sightseeing. Whilst everyone else was shooting and fighting. No, it does establish in the yeah. log entry, doesn't it, from Ace Jordan. Yeah. Ace Jordan, Ace Morgan, that Jordan's probably the best fighter pilot he's ever seen, but he just seemed to have that not necessary. He doesn't seem to have the killer instinct. Mm. Um, there are a few cases of soldiers still fighting and not knowing the war is over. Uh, one instance uh, where, even though they knew the war was over, though, uh, Japanese soldiers carried on fighting due to fear that they would be killed or tortured by their superiors and finally surrendered on March 9th, 1974 after they were discovered in the Philippines. From World War Two? Well, no. From oh, from Korea. Korea. I was going to say, after World War Two, <laughs> that's a long time. <laughs> um, actually, that was um, an episode of The Six Million Dollar Man as well. Was it? Steve Austin finds a Korean soldier out in the boonies somewhere who still thinks the war's on. Fair enough. And he, he integrates him back into society. It's quite a good episode, that one. I can't remember what it was called, but it was a good Surely one. Surely you'd find out after that long. Maybe not. Yeah. Uh, chapter four. Oh, no, I didn't. What did you think of this one? Um, I liked it. It's excellent, isn't it? Mm. It's especially the ending. I do think Hal Jordan... Well, my problem with reading this for the first time was Hal Jordan's in it a lot. It's just there's not enough Green Lantern. You can argue that the story is Hal Jordan's story, isn't it? Mm. He's certainly the character who's in it the most from the beginning. I would make a case that it isn't Green Lantern's story. No. It's Hal Jordan's story. I didn't miss him not being Green Lantern. Fair enough. But certainly when he does become Green Lantern, it's a huge payoff. Yeah. And it works really well. But I didn't. I wasn't waiting for it to happen. You see, because when I first read this, I was reading the Johns run on Green Lantern and Emerald Dawn and that so I was big on the Green Lantern then mm-hmm. so having him be Hal Jordan for most of it and then when he gets the power ring not use it yeah and he, he uses it later on it was 
Well, he uses it in this when ultimately he has no choice but to use it, mm. doesn't he? Yes, because the, the situation and circumstance force his hand. Yeah. But he's he's a bit reticent to use it originally. But we'll get there. Mm-hmm. We'll get to that bit. Chapter four is called Gods and Monsters. At the Griffith Observatory, with his dying words, an old scientist tells his companion that he must not reveal himself in these politically charged times. The companion stands revealing himself to be not of this earth. Wonder Woman, meanwhile, has been sent to Cambodia to rescue the American crew of a downed C-47 transport that, due to the political situation in the area, should not have been there. On her way back, she spotted a tiger cage of women being held by the soldiers in Laos. Returning under cover of night, Wonder Woman liberates the captives and disarms the soldiers. The women pick up arms and slaughter the tormentors. Wonder Woman elects to train them to defend themselves, a move which appalls Superman, who has just shown up to ascertain what's going on. Wonder Woman tells him that this is justice, that there are no rules here, and if he doesn't like it, there's the door. Gotham City in 1955. We learn the alien being we saw earlier is a telepathic shapeshifter from Mars, and using currency left behind by the scientist, Dr. Odell, he's secured himself lodging in Gotham, and starts learning about life on Earth via television. Which is perfectly acceptable. From the glass teat, he learns that he wants to be a force for good and corrupting his Martian name of John Johns into the more Earth-appropriate John Jones, he becomes a police detective. I like your pronunciation of the um, apostrophes. Did you? Did you like that? Over the next few years, we learn that police scientist Barry Allen is hit by lightning but suffers only minor cuts and abrasions in Central City in 1956, whilst in Russia in 1957, Sputnik is launched. In 57, Eisenhower is elected for a new term and promises to prevent the slew of communism and advance the American space race. By 1957, John Jones has joined forces with P.I. Slam Bradley to track down the kidnapped son of a prominent financier. John has, through one of his hunches, tracked the kid down to a nearby church and busting in, they see the Batman already taking action. John spots the kid about to take a knife to the chest but is left immobile when the curtains in the church catch fire. The Batman reaches the knife-wielding kidnapper and busts him up in such a way that even Slam Bradley is scared of it. So is the kid who won't come near the Batman even after he releases him. With the kid safe, the Batman melts away, but John picks up a book that he can't open. Was Mars burnt before or after John was ported to Earth? Uh, I... I get that it was before he was here. Because that would explain his fear of fire. Yes. Because of Mars burning. And this explains him being dragged against his will. Yes, it does. And he can't get back. Because of Earth technology limitations of the time. Which I liked. That's another thing I really liked about this story. Despite the fact you've got Superman in the story, Earth technology isn't super technology. You've not got a Reed Richards here inventing spaceships that can take you to the negative zone. That was Iron Man as well. Yeah. It's only... The, he only has the technology that's available to him and at this point we, we don't have rockets that can go into space. Mm. So I, I, I liked that. That was a nice little touch. Uh, the opening pages of the story offer up more shades of grey for Superman and Wonder Woman to deal with. We're given a shot of a newspaper article by Clark Kent that offers a very sanitised version of Wonder Woman's trip to Cambodia. And Superman's reaction is again one that we don't necessarily see him making. The US was not publicly helping the war that ultimately would become Vietnam at this time, but was secretly training the South Vietnamese. Whilst Wonder Woman is right to tackle the issues she sees before her, she's very politically naive. 
On the other hand, Superman's blind devotion to a cause he must know is flawed is very interesting. I like that Cook offers no solution of his own and takes no side, simply offers up the character's viewpoint and lets the reader decide where they would stand and who they would stand with. Cook shots of Superman, all shadowy vengeance are very good, and Cook apes the flacious Superman perfectly. However, when Wonder Woman calls Superman Spaceman, I heard Catherine Tate's voice. <laughs> and I don't see Catherine Tate playing Wonder Woman. Again, this scene takes on a whole new light when you discover what you discover about Superman later on. Yeah. Which is quite interesting in, uh, in terms of... Uh, Superman's overall story arc. The blurring of fantasy and fiction takes a strange turn here. In a world where we have Superman, wouldn't he have been the first man in space? Well, maybe he isn't counted as the first man in space because the Americans are only counted whoever they'll send up there because of the technology, rather than someone who can just fly anyway. Right, yeah, okay, I'll buy that. I'll buy that as an explanation. Uh, page 86. Oh, sorry, page 80. Again, um, a shot of Wonder Woman, looking wonderfully buxom and curvaceous. Mm. I'm a big fan of Shapely. I like how Wonder Woman's bigger than Superman. Yes, she's taller than him, isn't she? Yeah. Because she's an Amazon. Mm. That makes sense to me. Was there some kind of battle over that? That Wonder Woman not be bigger than Superman? Um, I remember the first time you read this and saying that it did seem quite odd, but a good choice to make. Yeah, I love his depiction of Wonder Woman, I really do. Mm. She's a proper, full-figured woman. Because you don't buy some skinny girl wielding a sword. No. But I'd, I'd buy Wonder Woman. She's, she looks very influenced by Lucy Lawless as Xena. Yeah. Particularly on that page, on page 80. She looks like a warrior. Yes, she looks like a warrior. A proper one. It's very good. Very good depiction of her. We like it a lot. Uh, page 86 and 90 were additions to the omnibus that were not present in the six-issue miniseries. Page 86 gives us more background on John's Martian abilities and his fear of fire, which makes the scene on page 96 play better, as without it, it's unclear why John's afraid of fire. The addition of Barry Allen takes place where he debuted in real-world terms. Again, this is something Cook would do a lot in these stories, and is similar to the approach that John Byrne would take in his first two generations miniseries, although beyond that basic starting point both tell drastically different stories uh, I adored page 90 where we see Barry testing his speed and his shoes burn up it doesn't explain how his flash comet doesn't burn up yeah. but it's quite cute uh, it's also an addition to the omnibus not being present in the miniseries that page wasn't in the miniseries okay. where Barry Allen's testing his powers so the page that you were reading flash comics wouldn't have bugged you in the mini because no. it wouldn't have been there um, from war movie to film noir Cook drops us into the seedy world of Gotham City corruption, all rain-soaked streets, neon lights, fedoras, trench coats, and cops on the take. And it's just gorgeous. The artwork on page 91, uh, the shot of a seedy Gotham City, is brilliant, isn't it? I like how the car like drives through the title. Yeah, which is excellent and a really excellent touch. Mm. I wonder if it'll do that in the film. Know. when we watch the film um, you know the monologue is being told by Slam to Jimmy the yeah. owner of Jimmy's 24-7 is Jimmy Pamiotta is it? yeah alright oh, I knew that it was Jimmy's was Jimmy's bar because Jimmy's bar plays a not an important role but it's in the story again later on I didn't know it was a nod to Jimmy Pami Jimmy Pamiotti yeah excellent uh, Slam says that words like blast and gosh are corny and yet in this people are saying stuff like criminy rang my bell 
dank and suffering Susie? Uh, I'll go with you on suffering Susie and dank, but rang my bell is just a colloquialism of the time. Right. So I'll cut him some slack for that one. And probably criminy is probably just like crikey, isn't it? It's probably yeah. just a, a tame expletive. But John's learned everything off TV. Mm. So that explains yeah, his that's... speech pattern. Wow. Um, page 94, Cook loses me for a second. <laughs> he was doing so well. Uh, referring to the Batman as wearing a Nancy outfit and looking like a Saturday matinee pulls me right out of the story. I know in real life anybody dressed up in a costume looks a bit silly. But in comics, we want it to be treated believably. And of all the superhero costumes, the Batman is supposed to be scurry. Cute references to the suit undermine the very reality that Cook's trying to represent. That being said, he redeems himself on the very next page. We don't see what the Batman does to the knife-wielding child kidnapper, but it makes the rest of the crooks turn tail and flee, and even hardened private investigator Slam Bradley's heart runs cold. So we don't know what he does, but it's not nice. Licks his face. You think? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, here we see the purple-gloved spiky horn, not a long-nosed cape defy- gravity-defying cape, uh, Batman. However, he doesn't use guns in this, whereas in the regular DCU, this Batman used guns around this point. Not in... This is 57, isn't it? Is it? We're into the late 50s now. He wasn't using guns in the 50s. I mean, if you're going off a strict chronological interpretation of it, yeah, it's 1957 now. Yeah. Um, at this point, Batman was fighting space aliens wearing zebra suits. Thankfully, Darwin Cook didn't go that route. He should have. No, he shouldn't. We, we, we have flying islands and dinosaurs. Why not have Martians in zebra suits? No, I think you're stretching credibility slightly too far. I'm sure you could make it work. Fitzy 50s Batman's just not an era I'm fond of, is it? <laughs> it's just not... I can read any era of Superman and dig on it. But with Batman, as far as I'm concerned, the boot can stop in 1944 and start again in 1969 and I would be perfectly happy. Okay. I don't buy zebra Batman. I don't buy rainbow-coloured Batman. There's a couple of stories from that era I like, like Castle with Walter Wall Danger and stuff like that, but... Um, the Batman seems surprised that the kid's scared of him. Isn't that the very effect he's trying to achieve? And Bradley's put down on this page sounds like bravado rather than piss takery. Well, the child being scared of him is what makes him tone down his fear-inducing costume and start smiling in this story. Yeah, and why he adopts Robin as well, isn't it? And why he gets pudgier. Yeah, because it's one of those things that he wants to scare people. Maybe he doesn't want to scare him quite that much. Mm. Um, I loved this. It feels like an issue of Gotham Central, if it was set in the 50s, with the Batman making only a fleeting appearance and the PI and the cop teaming up to take down bad guys. Cook mixes up his genres again, taking us from the Pacific War movie to Korean War movie to Detective Noir, yet it never feels jarring. The art, again, is simply magnificent. Cook's landscape shots are beautiful, from the shot of Griffin Observatory to the shot of a full-figured Wonder Woman celebrating with the women in the rice huts in Laos to the noir-tinged streets of Gotham. Cook puts every single one of them in the back of the net. Add in the hysterical six-panel sequence where John watches TV, changing his appearance depending on what he's watching, to the two-thirds of a page shot of the Batman fighting in the church. Every single panel in this book is a work of art. I would give this to anybody who says comics aren't art. 
and after I've smacked them around the head with it, <laughs> let them read it. I would make them read it. Yes, it's it's gorgeous. This it really is good. Do you have anything to say about that one? No. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> Chapter five: Fun City. Whilst in Las Vegas, a boxing match is taking place between Wildcat, Ted Grant, and Cassius Clay, with Wildcat on the ropes. Clay goes for the knockdown, but Wildcat is saved by the bell. Wildcat comes back strong and lays one on the contender. Clay goes down. Still, heavyweight champion of the world, Ted Wildcat Grant. At the after party, it is revealed that Grant was one of the JSA who retired rather than turn himself in, but all political talk is shelled when Grant is introduced to the room. In Central City, Barry Allen receives a call from gal pal Iris West in Vegas covering the event when he hears an explosion down the line. Captain Cold has gate-crashed wanting the gate receipts. Racing to Vegas as the Flash and after checking on Irish, he confronts Cold. He stops short of punching him out, but when Cold tells him that if he is touched, six cryogenic bombs he's planted around the city will explode. The Flash finds five bombs, but realises the sixth is a decoy. He latches the bombs to a balloon and lets them loose. Then he shoots up the building through a window and through the chopper. Cold is escaping on pulling him out. Cold tries to fire his freeze ray, but it explodes in his face as the bomb he plants explode causes snow in Gate Vegas. The Flash disappears. Hal Jordan and Ace Morgan have driven through the night to arrive at Ellis Air Force Base, where they both express envy at the Flash and his speed, but Morgan knows there's something wrong with Hal Jordan. Since the war, he's been reckless. Taking dangerous mission after dangerous mission with no concern for his own safety, Hal's pushing himself and fears that he will now never reach the heights he once envisioned for himself. Morgan says it does no good to dwell on war and killing. It was war. They did what they had to do. Morgan then says that he's got a gig over at Ferris Aircraft and Hal goes wild. Maybe he will get to reach the stars, after all. Another excellent chapter. Um, I don't have to tell you that Cassius Clay was Muhammad Ali, do I? No. Oh, no. He did, after all, fight Superman. Mm-hmm. Everything comes back to Superman. Lots of lovely cameos in this chapter. In the crowd, watching the boxing match, are Bruce Wayne, Oliver Queen, Lois Lane, Ace Morgan, Hal Jordan, Selina Kyle, Carol Ferris and Dina Lance. The commentator is also Jack the Creeper Rider. Oh, that's so easy. That's a little cameo I missed. Well caught, young Michael. Uh, The fight with Cassius Clay is pure fiction. In his professional career... Ali only lost five fights, oh, and all of, of those were after 1970. It's possible, like you say, that this is before he turned pro, or it could be a different fighter named Clay. Doubtful, but yeah. possible. He would, of course, go on to win the heavyweight championship title in 1964. Uh, that being said, the art is once again gorgeous. Cook magnificently catches the gaudy romanticism of Vegas in the 50s. The men are all dapper, the women are all gorgeous, and the fight's brutal. The dialogue, again, is fantastic, from the commentator wondering what's going through Grant's mind after the clay knockdown, which turns out to be relaxing on a beach with beautiful women on page 105, to the state of his face, which is just a mess, isn't it? Mm. To Selena setting up Plan B, to Grant executing Plan B. This feels, again, like every boxing movie you've ever seen in your life. The two-page spread of the knockout punch on page 102 and 103, the full-page splash of Grant's victory on page... 111? Yeah. To the wonderfully, to the utterly wonderful expression on Dina's face... On page 109, it's just great stuff. It's fantastic. Well rendered, well done. Page 113, 
after the fight, the political situation rears its ugly head in conversation. Mention is made of Lois being Superman's mouthpiece and her assertion that at least he's doing something, unlike the rich boys, is backed by Bruce Wayne's snarl, where his face is just all in shadow, which I just thought was a wonderful little touch. Yeah. Shows off who he is as well. Yeah, it gives a little indication that he's the Batman, which is something that you've not been told mm. in the story, which if I had a criticism of it, that would be one of them. For readers who don't know Batman. Yeah, for readers who don't people. know Batman then you're kind of what's his name though mm. I mean I doubt anyone knows Bruce Wayne yeah. as a Batman but you know um, the Johnny Thunder show that Barry's watching is not a real show but Johnny Thunder was a member of the JSA oh right maybe he went into acting after the JSA disbanded maybe it's always possible page 115 is a nice touch that Iris got an autograph programme for Barry yeah I just there's lots of little character nuggets throughout the whole of this that are just lovely little things like that. Would you get me his autograph? I bet he wishes he got Muhammad Ali's autograph, yeah. to be honest with you. Um, here, Captain Cold is modelling as Grant Morrison, as was Brainiac in Justice. Uh, yeah, I think you've mentioned that before, that he was he was looking at. Uh, page 119 is, again, not in the miniseries, where we see the Flash eject the costume from his ring, which, again, is lovely. I don't see why like it's that. cut out. Cause it's not necessary. Well, it... it they needed to lose a page. They were overrunning. It's a good. It's a page you can lose, isn't it? With a lot of the pages that are added into this, though, with them added in, it makes an easier transition. In yes. The well, it is one of those things. Cook does say in the commentary in the back, he was always sorry to lose a page, hmm. and he was glad that he got to put them back in for this. But if you're going to edit a page out of this story, it, it's an easy. It's an easy edit, isn't it? Yeah. You know, it's it's no loss to the story. Cute though the scene may be. Page 120-121 is a two-page spread that is gorgeous. It's a perfect blending of words and pictures as we learn of Barry's trial and error in learning his powers. Don't break the sound, Barry, when there are glass buildings around, being rule number one, apparently. Um, and Cook's depiction of speed on this page is just awesome. We see a wide panel of the landscape with a yellow blur and an explosion at the point where Barry hits the sound barrier. Then a close-up of his eyes, which are clear, surrounded by the blurry outline of his mask, and then earpieces, and then an over-shoulder shot of him speeding towards Vegas. Come on, tell me, art boy, that that's not wonderful. That's good. It's art. It's... Do you reckon it's better than uh, Francis Manipal? Francis Manipal owes an awful lot to Darwin Cook, doesn't he? Certainly in his depiction of the Flash. Yeah. Um, I don't want to, see. I don't want to say better than each other. I think both of them are excellent in their own style. Yeah, in their own way. But Cook's work in this is just brilliant. Um, I mean, <laughs> I'm getting repetitive here, but Cook's depiction of the Flash arriving and rescuing Iris before almost laying Captain Cold out is just lovely. Political conversation returns with Lois and Colonel Flagg opining that the Flash is a vigilante and a federal criminal. Bruce, again, just glowers. And when Selina objects, Ted Grant points out this is still America and freedom of speech is still allowed. It's an interesting point. Freedom of speech allows people to say stuff you don't agree with. I did like that Ted muses that Jay would have just loved the Flash versus Captain Cold, which is awesome. Mm. Uh, page 129 through 130 is why superhero comics are fantastic 
Barry uses his brains to calculate the speed, trajectory and angle he'll need to be at to get up to the helicopter and pull Captain Cold free. He miscalculates slightly and makes a mistake. Not vibrating through the window properly, doesn't he? Yeah. So the glass shatters, but he still manages to pull it off. Um, I told your mum when I was doing the notes for this, the sheer joy that these two pages gave me was indescribable. It's fantastic. Mm. How cool would it be to be able to do that? Yeah. I it, just it, it's is it not only made better because he messed up as well? Yeah, it's if made right better. The glass, yeah. it just it's made better by his mistake yeah. that he, he messed up so he's not perfect but he still pulls off what he was trying to pull off mm. it was uh, it's, I loved this I loved this sequence I just had a little squee moment when I was reading it it's like yes did you fangirl out I did I fangirled out and I don't mind admitting it uh, page 133 where the bombs go off causing snow in Vegas it just reminds me of all those Doctor Who Christmas specials where they contrive a reason for it to snow yeah every year um, at least there's snow in Vegas whereas over here there isn't yeah that's true well there was snow last year bits yeah. uh, page 133 I've said that uh, with this issue Coop gets to do a balls out superhero story and does it well there's good use of the Flash's powers a super villain and it's a nice change of pace from the heavier material that's gone down so far. Cook does give us the wider picture, with characters from previous stories all making an appearance, plus the political situation gives us some nice background and subtext, but for the most part, this is a simple homage to the Silver Age, and it's exceptionally well done. Or at least I thought it was. As Michael's pointed out, it is very evocative of the current Francis Manipal mm. New 52 Flash. Which I still think is one of the best books they publish. Yeah, Certainly yeah. in terms of out-and-out superhero story. And especially in art. Yeah, and the, yeah, the artwork's fantastic. Um, page 135, Morgan and Jordan's envy of the Flash's speed was another one of those nice little character beats that I've mentioned crop up a lot, given that they're both test pilots. Yeah. The idea of being able to hit that level of speed without the benefit of a fighter jet must be something that they could only dream of. Yeah. at this point both of them will well, certainly Hal Jordan will learn what it's like to be able to achieve that um, after the superheroic epicness of the last issue this epilogue's a lovely little character scene with Morgan comforting Hal who's still suffering from the effects of killing a man it wasn't a clean kill Hal put the gun to his cheek in close quarters and pulled the trigger that's really heavy stuff and I'm glad that they've not just forgotten about it and swept it under the carpet. Arguably, it will inform Hal's character for the rest of the story. It's a shame Cook's never been able to follow up on this mm. and do more stories with these characters in this era. It's really good. Is that does fit the era very well? Yeah, he does period piece. Certainly when the 50s stuff. Mm. The cars and the women's clothes and the... the Even stuff like that watch. Yeah, the watch, yeah, that we're going to get on the next page when we get into the next chapter. And certainly Ferris Aircraft's yeah. Art Deco 50s look. It's it's just gorgeous, gorgeous there's a, there's a lot of it that I like because of the Fallout games as well. Why, is the Fallout in the 50s? Well... Um, there was a nuclear war in the 50s so even though it was in like the year 3000 oh, right. still... everything's frozen yeah. at that point right. chapter 6 the men who fell to earth Montreal 1957 flight AF772 crashes yet all four passengers defy the odds and survive 
The memory of the night still causes nightmares for Red Ryan, Daredevil motorcyclist for the Colossus Circus, and when drink, pills and women can't take his mind off the events of that night, he leaves unsure when he will return. He heads to the Rocky Mountains in Colorado, the scene of the crash. It takes him 40 minutes to walk the length of the crash. 40 minutes of musing that there is simply no way they could have survived. None. To his surprise, the three other survivors are also there. Ace Morgan, Rocky Davis and Professor Haley all agree to hoist a few brews together. Should have been Haley's circus. It should have been, yeah. In Coast City, Hal Jordan meets up with Carol Ferris to discuss a job offer. He takes the gig and upon arriving at Ferris Ur meets Colonel Rick Flagg and swiftly learns there's more to Ferris than meets the eye. Eight weeks of tests later and Jordan is starting to feel less than happy. Tales that Flagg and his crew are unhinged don't add to his good mood. In New York City, Colonel Flagg's Task Force X, aka the Suicide Squad, lose a man to a pterodactyl. Flagg says he only knows of one place where he's seen that before. Following the funeral, the team head back to the Pacific where they find John Cloud's final message warning them of a living thing that will be returning. Before they can investigate further, a mighty earthquake almost swallows them, but the team escape. Knoxville, Tennessee. The KKK burn a house to the ground with a small child and a woman inside. A man, noose still around his neck, falls from the tree from which he was hung, miraculously still alive. He follows them into the night. He forges himself a hammer and an inverse KKK costume, a black hood instead of a white one, and completes the look with a hangman's noose around his neck. Then he takes the fight back to them. Page 141 to 145 are a wonderful little sequence depicting the crash of the four men that will become the challenges of the unknown. Cook shows it all through the watch, a reference to the old Timex takes a licking but keeps on ticking commercials, where we see that the owner of the timepiece, Red Ryan, still wears it later, even complete with busted face. The pages, all jumbled close-ups and snatches of events, culminate in a two-page splash of four men being flung three of the aircraft, battered but unharmed. And he's very lucky in that double page splash that that nut didn't go through his head, isn't he? Because mm. it's very close to him. It's an ex- again, it's an excellent sequence. The pacing's wonderful, the action's wonderful. It's just wonderful, for want of a better word. Page 149, it's a lovely little touch that Hal wasn't making a reference to Carol being a woman and being in charge of a business, rather than he was mentioning that she was so young. Carol's defensiveness implies that this is a reaction she's used to. It highlights a key difference between the woman in the DC universe and the Marvel universe. While Sue Storm was in the thick of the action, it was as the invisible hostage in the early days, and the characters were all secretaries, Betty Brandt, Karen Page, whilst in the DCU, despite some silliness and sexism of the times, Lois Lane and Carol Ferris were career women. Uh, the art, gorgeous, on the two pages were Hal Jordan's chatting up Carol in the uh, restaurant. The restaurant where they meet is stunning with the moon low in the sky and the stars twinkling and the surf lapping at the beach. The colouring's also gorgeous on the page, isn't it? Where it, it looks like it's clearly been illuminated by the candles mm. on the desk. Carol's got a lovely little round face, which I thought was a nice little... What's it? Hanging a lantern on it, Cook points out that it's highly improbable all four men should be at the crash site at the same time, but that kind of coincidence happens all the time in comics, doesn't it? Mm. We've learned to live with it. Page 155, 156, Cook very tastefully handles John Henry's near death and pointedly never shows all of the burning cross, leaving it to the reader to deduce what's going on. John Henry's story 
is perhaps the most affecting of the entire series. Mm. The, um, Henry was supposed to be the new frontier version of Steel. Yeah, yeah. well, he, he says in the commentary at the back, doesn't he? He's brought yeah. him forward a bit from where he was really introduced because he felt that the Ku Klux Klan story works better with a character that we know. Yeah. Or have prior history on. I do like the subtlety with the cross and the triangle as well. Yeah. You just know that someone like Garth Ennis, though, probably had a big splash page or the cover of an issue being the burning cross. Though. Yeah, well, Cook's a bit more subtle. Maybe he was Everyone's forced. more subtle than. Yeah. Yes, the the panel, the top panel on page one hundred thirty five, where you just see the top of the hats mm. and the burning cross and the burning house in the background is very subtly handled. John's falling off the tree and him being hung is very subtle. That is something that you can miss if you're not paying attention, isn't it? Mm. It's very well handled. I don't, I doubt that this was code approved, being as it was a prestige book. But I do wonder. Well, do they still get printed under the? I don't think prestige code. books were published under the comics code, no. I thought they stopped doing after a while. They did, but did back in 2004 they will still have the comics code. I thought Stan Lee fought against it. Stan Lee fought against the drugs issues, yeah. Right. But I do wonder if... I don't Not censorship, but I do wonder if he was told to handle this very sensitively because of the subject matter that he was tackling. Oh, oh. Last panel, then. Yeah, you still don't see the cross. The cross is all but burned. So you're left to figure out what's going on. It's very well done. Very, very exceptionally done. Um, One of the biggest edits from the miniseries occurs here. Pages 164 through 169 were Colonel Flagg and Co. return to the island that time forgot is missing from the miniseries which is a real shame because they're a fun little adventure for the Suicide Squad and really the first time we get to see them in action don't it? Well it also um, foreshadows the island well the reveal of what the island is later Yeah, and he he got rid of it because he didn't want readers to know about it just yet Right hmm. See I disagree with that I, I don't think knowing that ruins the story in any way it doesn't spell it out for you, but it yeah. kind of hints at it. Yeah, once you've read the whole thing, you can go back and look. Now I've read all of this. Yeah. I'm going back and looking at this first bit and going, ah, right, yeah, there's a lot of it that does make sense more, having read the ending. Um, and we've mentioned the Art Deco look for Ferris aircraft, but this is no more... This is wonderfully depicted on the last panel of page 171. It's, which is just wonderful, isn't it? Yeah. It's excellent. I can't really describe the art. Page 177 through 179, we get a background on Task Force X. We get to the background on Task Force X, and it ain't pretty. Karen Grace's story is particularly harrowing, isn't it? Yeah. Where we explain that every single one of Task Force X has gone through some traumatic period or another. They should call it Task Force T, T for trauma. Yeah, it's, it's very good. Very, very well. Very, you, it gives you a lot of interesting character bits. Yeah. about why they are why, like they are um, this issue is very much Cook bringing these story elements together again Ace Morgan and Hal John's relationship with Fe- sorry with Ferris and Flag, Flag and Task Force X the formation of the challenges of the unknown the island from chapter one it's all starting to link together it's fun to read and the art's still excellent but this is very much a scene setter in terms of the overall story arc chapter seven paranormal paranoia after a trip to the cinema to better acquaint himself with humans, John Johns is greeted at home by the Batman. 
Batman gives him a medallion he wants checking against a book Jahan picked up after they first met. The Batman believes the medallion is somehow involved in increasing psychic stimuli that is causing panics throughout the world. Batman leaves but warns Jahan he knows how to stop him. Hal Jordan has finally had his security clearance upgraded and is taken to the real Ferriser, an expansive underground lure, very similar to a James Bond villain lure, ran by King Faraday and Colonel Flagg. Jordan learns that Faraday wants to bypass what NASA and the Reds are doing completely and go straight to Mars. In Washington, Wonder Woman is honoured with a citizenship medal to the US, but is rebuked when she tries to talk about foreign policy issues. John uncovers the book from evidence and inserts the medallion into the front. John learns that the threat isn't coming. It's already here. Uh, the opening scenes are really evocative of the old-time movie newsreels. It's a lovely touch that John sees John Johns sees a Felicia cartoon Superman before the main feature. Presumably, the DC Universe version doesn't have Clark Kent in it and compose how he feels about revealing himself. Uh, there was an old Superman story by Jerry Siegel yeah. where he goes to the cinema and they play one of those Fleischer Superman cartoons and he spends the entire story distracting Lois so she doesn't know he's Clark Kent. What about everyone else in the so, audience? Did they say it's Clark Kent in the audience? Yeah. <laughs> Which is quite Maybe fun. secret identity and this is John Doe. Possible. Uh, the challenges of the unknown real is fun. Um and over the top and John's reaction to Invaders from Mars which he's watched he's gone to the cinema to watch was quite similar to mine even as a kid this is a comedy right uh, this island earth was just as wooden but at least it had cool aliens in it Invaders from Mars came out in 1953 about four to five years before this chapter so I presume this, this, this is on re-release I wonder what John thought of War of the Worlds I wonder if he thought that was a better depiction of Martian invasion he probably laughed all the way through it yeah. Bacteria? Yeah. It's fire. Do I look like I have three fingers? Um, you know, the first time I read this, I thought that Wonder Woman, uh, Nixon, cut Wonder Woman off because not only was, uh, not only because of her approach to politics, but because she was also a woman in the fifties. It could be. That could be a part of it. Women knew their place mm. back in the fifties. Would have been funny if Wonder Woman had just turned around there and knocked his head off. Yeah. But alas, she didn't do that. Um, page 197 was my first disappointment was in it? the book. Page 197 through 200. Do you not know, think the art looks a bit scratchier? It does, especially in that bottom panel there. The bottom panel of page 198 and 199. Um, I don't know why. The art just because seems it goes back to normal on the next yeah, page. Yeah, because it goes back to normal as of page 200. Maybe it was a different inker. He has mentioned Jay Bone helped him out in a deadline crunch. Mm. So it is possible somebody else inked those pages. Uh, King Faraday, who we meet... This is for the first time, isn't it? It's the yep. first time we meet King Faraday. Is a complete arse to Hal Jordan. And as such a breath of fresh air in mm. the story. Flag's a bit of a jerk, but as we've learned over the course of this tale, he's an honourable jerk. Faraday's just a bonehead here. Interestingly, he will go on one of the major character story arcs throughout the whole story, won't he? Yeah. And he won't end up being a jerk. Well, he'll end up being much more likeable, but probably still a jerk. Yeah. Uh, this is easily the densest section of the story. Page 202. 
through pages 205 is essentially exposition as we have swaths of pages dedicated to plot exposition revealing what will ultimately be the end game it's not that it's not fun to read it is and it's not that the art isn't great as everywhere else it is with the exception i've already noted but it's really taken us away from the almost anthology-like aspect of the earlier stories and linking them all together as a narrative whole to propel us through the later chapters it isn't bad by any stretch of the imagination i greatly enjoyed it and certainly the ending, where we get um, a two-page spread of Darwin Cook's homage to... Um, what's his name? Hubert, isn't it? Yeah. Is, uh, is exceptionally good. And that's where we're going to bring part one to an end. That's the end of book three, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, and the beginning of chapter eight of the storyline. We'll be covering the remaining part of New Frontier next week. And then probably the film the week after. Yeah. Because uh, I think, have we decided we're going to do it as a chat about the film rather than a commentary? We'll watch it first yeah. and see what we think about it. So we hope you enjoyed it, that trawl through DC's New Frontier. Um, I can't recommend it enough, to be honest with you, but I'll probably go through it more next week when I tell you that you should all go out and buy it, preferably in the absolute format, mm. because it is simply gorgeous. We're not going to give you the money for it, though, no. No, 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 no. Is this still available? This isn't one of the out-of-print ones, is it? Well, this is the second printing. Is it? Mm. Right, okay. You didn't believe me when I first No, no, it. I didn't believe that, because I didn't think that uh, Absolutes went to second Some printings. Some Absolutes have uh, reprinted. Right. Okay, fair enough. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed that. That was kind of an abrupt ending, that. It was, yeah. Because uh, we kind of end on a melancholy downbeat note, though, with John realising that the threat's already here. But we'll continue to pick it up next week. Uh, if you want to email us, you know where to email us. If you want to Facebook us, say hi. Continue to pick it up. Yeah. Shut up. It's late. <laughs> I'm tired. Uh, and we'll see you next time. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Comics is a The Devil Will Make Work for Idle Hands to Do production, and all opinions expressed by Michael and Andrew in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and probably not to be taken too seriously. All music and sound clips used in the show are copyright the respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. Michael and Andrew make no money for this, much to their chagrin. New episodes drop every Thursday at aplayland.podomatic.com, but you can also listen through our Facebook page, which you can friend us on by using Hey Kids as the first name and Comics as the second name. You can also listen on our website, where you can also view the covers of the comics we've covered this week. That's www.heykidscomics.webspace.virginmedia.com. If you have an opinion on our opinions, you can email us on heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We also have a forum, www.forumforgeeksalloneword.com, where you can drop by and say hello if you're allergic to email. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics. <laughs>